This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I am Lisa. Hello. Hello. And I am Kara. And it is so great to be here on our podcast where we talk about an episode of SVU, the true crime it's based on, and we interview an amazing guest. And I'm oh, I'm pumped. You guys, I have to tell you, Lisa, Rosie is in these swim lessons right now that are intensive swim lessons. Like every day she goes for 30 minutes for eight days. And the man that is teaching them is a full child whisperer, Svengali. In four days, she is jumping into the pool and swimming to this man, breathing under, like holding her breath underwater. It is beyond. Like, I'm so proud of her. Like, I'm just like, I will talk to anybody that wants to talk about it. I'm like, oh my God, my daughter's in these swim classes. (laughs) And it's just been really cute. And we... We, I was so happy we found this guy because I guess this is a certain technique and a lot of people and in LA- are, are friends, is it both the, the other daughters or just one? Just or is one. It just, okay, it's, just it's, the older. You know almost every kid in this in this group. Oh, there's, there's a few kids. of you. Oh yeah, my God. They do two groups of three. They only go three at a time. And you know- all like you know all the kids except for maybe one. Um, I didn't and, realize it. So you all get this pool, and then he comes to you guys and revolutionizes your children's lives. Yes, and the first three go for thirty minutes, and then they leave, and then the next th- three go. And he like yeah, but apparently this technique that he teaches is like a lot of people teach it, but for some reason in the swim world in LA a bunch of the people that teach it will not get vaccinated. And it's like, you're going to be up close with a child in a pool during a pandemic. Like you have to get vaccinated. So we found like the one guy who gets vaccinated. And so it was so hard to book him and worth every fucking penny. He's so How far in advance did you book him? Like, I honestly can look at my emails. I think I started in January emailing him and we solidified it by February because he, he books up. 
Wow. Yeah. And it this was- This is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was a lot of money. It was, for what you would say, eight days, 30 minutes a day. That's four hours total. It's a bit, quite a bit of money, but honestly, ev- worth every penny. He is so good. Like, And he's probably doing a bunch of... The, I mean, this guy is oh, loaded. Oh, no. He's zooming around town. He drives a Tesla. Um, he, <laughs> he literally... Get like Rosie, the first couple of days she cried, obviously she's nervous and she still did everything. Like while crying, she did everything he told her to do. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like a cry, like with me, she'll just cry and stop and shut down. This guy has a way of like talking to these kids. It's really, there should be a documentary about him. He's like my octopus teacher for fucking kids. Like he's so amazing. Yeah, I mean, I am getting competitive. I <laughs> I did stop teaching swim lessons, I think, my senior year of high school, but I was gifted. It also is impossible to book you. That is true. Really too hard. <laughs> I don't have these skills. I don't think they would respect me, uh, the kids that I know. <laughs> There's I a predetermined relationship where they're like, Lisa. Like, she, Rosie would just be talking to you about all your tattoos. Yeah, like it wouldn't work. Oh, I did book an, a tattoo appointment, so... You have been near someone. I just got one of those COVID things. You've been near someone with COVID. Go fuck yourself. Leave us alone. How are we still getting those? (laughs) Yeah, we all have it. Leave us alone. We're on to the next. Monkeypox. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, By the way, if you can get, I don't know. I was listening to another podcast with Alaska and Willem. And Alaska was like, went to get the monkeypox vaccine and was like, I am a gay man. I am a entertainer. I am in the population, hugging people, traveling to different countries. I qualify. And they were like, you need a doctor's note saying that you qualify. Like, they're making it annoying for people to get monkeypox vaccines. Yeah, like, well, because it's like, they think it's a gay thing or something. Yeah, it's and it's so just sad annoying. that we haven't learned anything from COVID. Like, I thought the next response We learned nothing it- from anything. We're burning books. I just like, it is, they're taking Judy Bloom out of the libraries. I mean, we're living in fucking a Ray Bradbury short story. Like, I don't yes. know what to say. It's but the good crazy. news, and I know we're in the time machine and this is very old news by now, but I was really happy to see that Kansas news this morning when I woke up. The the uh, In Kansas, they voted overwhelmingly to keep abortion protections in their, uh, in their yeah, constitution, their state you. constitution. And I just think that's... 75% of this country is pro-abortion. Stop it. Everyone needs fuck to stop. Christian um, lunatics. Yeah. But the problem is the 25% that are pro-abortion, that's what they vote on. Like, they'll vote on that over anything else. Jared's grandmother votes on abortion only. I mean, in the words of your husband, they're soft-headed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they are so... True, true, true. Um, but what, true else is, what else is going on? Summer fun? I don't even know. I'm just, uh, you know, trying to get through things, going things. <laughs> when this airs, I think I'll be in upstate New York or in Manhattan and Brooklyn vibes. I don't know. Yes. I don't know what to fun. say. Yeah, I just don't know if I can pack again. Like, my went- my mental well-being is truly hinged on packing, and it's, I can't. 
I wonder if there's so someone upsetting. you could pay to help you or like do a task rabbity person, like who's like an organizer. Some of the suitcases are so heavy and I'm just lugging it miserable. And then the, every Uber driver is upset with me. And it's like, I don't like this either, sir. Like, I this know. isn't exciting for me. But at least but I, me- when you travel to New York, it's better because you drop off laundry everywhere. It may like yes. drop off laundry being the standard in New York is like, have it's just the best. Yeah. I love drop-off laundry. I used to love, oh my gosh, I really love that. I have my own laundry now and I have to do it myself. And, you know, it's not my favorite, but I guess it is convenient. Um, No, in the house is fine too. But like having these people that are incredible, they fold it, it's in a bat. It's like, it's heaven. It was heaven. And I like picked my apartments to make sure there was one close. Oh yeah. Oh my God. I was like always with a Santa sack going down the street every couple weeks. Yeah, I don't want to do that. But um, yeah, summer fun. I mean, my birthday is August 31st. Oh, this episode comes out the day before your birthday. So my birthday is August 31st. So I am excited. Yeah. So I already made reservations like about two months ago for a lunch at La Bernadette, a little three-course action, not the full tasting menu. Um, But it's been a dream to go to La Bernadette. And I'm going with two like foodie top chef fans. So they know who Eric Repair is. So it's going to be nice. It's going to be... because I don't know, treat. I don't, I don't actually know who that. You is. know Eric <laughs> Repair. He's the king of seafood. He looks like King Triton, like white hair, blue eyes, French accent, and he, he is just the king of seafood, really, and okay. um, just the standard uh, in the world. And, and he, that's what La Bernadette is. I, yeah, for, that's I, his for, restaurant. Oh, I, I didn't know it was seafood. I assumed it was just like fancy French. No, um, and he sadly was best friends with um, Bourdain. They are best buds. Oh, yeah. So he'll, he like cried. Like, they were best buddies. Um, yeah. But yeah, just like a New York King, French legend, and a great, you know, Top Chef. There's lots of cooking shows, but Top Chef does get the highest caliber of chefs in the world. Come on that show. Yeah. And so you get to learn. I, I got to learn about all the best chefs through Top Chef. Yeah. And, you know, I have... I have Met Padma, Tom Colicchio, and Gail in different oh. ways throughout my life. So I have had some action with each of them, which makes me thrilled. Padma came to my stand-up show in New York one time that I yep. ran every week, but I wasn't there. She was at the cellar, and she was in all white, and I saw her. And it was an, great. an angel. An angel an in angel. white. Descending. Gail, I saw in Molly at the Lizzo concert. Oh, yes, I was with you, but I didn't see Gail. Yeah, and she just, like, came at me like an angel. And then um, Tom Colicchio, I did an MSNBC news I remember with. that. I do recall that you got to do that with Tom Colicks. Yeah, it was huge. Went to strip house before, then got carbon monoxide poisoned at, in the night. I mean, life is really an up-and-down journey. <laughs> <laughs> I I really, like, I don't, I just gave up on Top Chef even though I loved it. I really loved I doubt, it. I was you're just right. like, I just don't have time and it's the same thing every season even though I loved it. I loved seeing what they did and I was like, this is, there's so much talent, you know, but. Uh, yeah, I just kind I of dip in and out, but I did watch the master, like the masters all winners or right. like the best of the best, like battle of champions. And then the hottest person ever, Melissa won. And yeah. And I do uh, love going to one of yeah. their restaurants. If I'm in a place where there's like a, when I hear about a top chef person's restaurant, I'm like, oh, that will be good. You know, as opposed to yeah. like, I don't know, a lot of other shows. 
I wouldn't necessarily, I would never really like hunt down the winners to go do something. No, because Chopped is trying to fuck you. Like all the others are trying to fuck you in weird ways, but Top I mean, Top Chef's trying to fuck you, but it's in, it's just classier. It's just Bravo is classier. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to say. Bravo is a caliber of reality competition television that not many outside of drag race have been able to emulate. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Can you imagine a Bravo? You heard it here a, first. <laughs> a, a drag race move to Bravo. Can you imagine? Um, no, but I'm, you know, I'm lis- I listened to Brian Moylan's book and like Bravo, I mean, Project Runway moving to Lifetime was like sad and wild. It did decrease the brand in like a yes. way. Yeah. And Carly Kloss's dumbass. So I stopped watching when they moved to Lifetime. I, st- I, I was still pretty hooked, but once Carly Kloss came clomping her way in, I said, no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, it, it, it was disgusting to me. Oh, God. Um, But yeah, just high class. Like the high class people were on Project Runway. You know, like real right. respected Everybody, judges. Yeah, those are like good reality shows too because everyone's very talented. It's not and just like... Yeah. Sometimes I watch compilations of Michael Kors giving criticism on Project <laughs> Runway. <laughs> Frankly, I was underwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> well, also this architectural digest I love because um, there's like vases everywhere and finally goes, I mean, we just love a vessel in this house. <laughs> <laughs> but he has a fucking penthouse in the West Village and I think that's like the ultimate dream. Like I, I can't mean, think of anything more And he's somebody who I really think he is so funny and I know he's talented, but I do not like his stuff when I see it in stores. In stores, his like ready to wear, not as much, but his red carpet shit is amazing. Like oh, okay. Kate Hudson always looks amazing in it. Um, His Michael Kors uh, red carpet dresses, I think are always Yeah, his couture fuck. stuff is probably really nice and his, 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 his ready like, to wear is the Lord not. and Taylor stuff's not doing it for me. No, um, but no. but I think um, his red carpet looks like if you just Google, I think you would be um, into them. To be honest, because oh, okay. you like a chic, simple vibe. Yes, yes. So I think you would like him. But even okay. Zach Posen, like like touching the fabric, the way they talk about smooth stitching, it's just like I just love people that love what they do and watching them like yeah. care about the contestants. I mean, I think that's why RuPaul wins Emmy after Emmy because he is like whatever you hear if he's in, like his, about how personal he is outside or like while he's working, but like you could see he cares about these queens and yes. he cries and he's moved and he wants them to succeed and live good lives and he is on their side and that's what makes it so good when like the fucking judges care. Yeah. Yeah. And I he, yeah. It. Rue has launched the careers of a, th- a thousand ships, you know, Not, like he's- But he changed every, like, dra- like it became, it's mainstream. Kids are going to drag con. Like who would yeah. have thought that 30 years ago? Yeah. Oh my God. That's so funny. I just, we'd have Rosie and Oscar's kid badges from drag con are like part of the toys they play with. And I was just picking them up and like hanging them up earlier. So cute. I was like thinking to myself, wow, I bet conservatives would hate that I have like two badges to drag on hanging in my kids' rooms. They're just the worst. It's like, why don't you start with the Catholic church? It's just like, they're just bonkers. Just hateful bonkers people. How do we always end up um, We always end up raging with like, yes, against the Christian right? We Um, try. I guess it's oppressive. I mean, that's the whole point. It's like, it's overbearing and nuts and it feels but not really we're not near it I don't know it's all very strange yeah all right I'm sorry I just went on a weird um 
speech about reality TV show judges, and I might am ashamed, but I don't think you should. I felt ashamed. passionate. In the I moment. think you are that person who is passionate about things, and television is one of the things you are passionate about. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right, let's get started. Speaking of passion for television, I know, I'm and hungry. Talking let's about get this going. <laughs> today's episode. I'm excited. This is a fucking banger of an app. So let's get into it. Banger. No, Kara texted me being like, oh my God, I forgot yeah. this episode's <laughs> fucking incredible. So. Oh, before we start, we have to mention, if you have not seen our posts on Instagram and social media, we are going on tour. So check out all of the cities that we're going to. Buy some tickets. Let's sell out. We'll meet all of you. We'll get drunk. I can't wait. We'll be in the Midwest, the East Coast, Southeast, South, Texas, everywhere that you live, we will be there, except the Dakotas. No one wants to go there. So you got to start traveling. But we can't wait to be everywhere, and I can't wait to meet you guys. So check out all of our tour info, visit our website, and we'll be promoting the shit out of it. So get ready to hear about this tour for the next six months. All right, let's get into today's episode, Criminal, Season 5, Episode 21. Oh, this aired on 420, Lisa, in 2004. No way. Hell yeah. This is a 420 <laughs> episode, baby. And should, you- I, should I spark a bowl? <laughs> I wouldn't four, do a four, joint. 20, 2004. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't smoke a joint because I respect you, but <laughs> maybe a baby boy. I wouldn't care. So, the episode, season five is a banger of a, of a season. Like, we've done, when I was going through the Hulu, I was like, wait, we've done that one, that one, that we've done a lot of season five episodes. It's a, I think they were really hitting their stride and it was a hot season. So, we open on a cold. New York day and a marigold salesman. There's like a man pulling a push cart with of marigolds. Like we're in the old world. I don't, I've never, literally never seen someone selling flowers out of the back of a push cart like that in Central Park. But this man's like, he's arguing with a cop who's on horseback and he's like, come on, like you got to get this crime scene out of my way. It's ruining my business or, or they made him move because of a crime scene. You can't really tell what's going on here. But this flower man is mad. And then the cop, radios in and is like, hey, uh, who, which cop is working the crime scene in the Rambles? And that's a part of Central Park, a famous part of Central Park called the Ramble. And the woman on the radio is like, no crime scene there. And the cop who has dismounted at this point is like confused. He goes under the tape and he's like, no, it's still taped off. It's gotta be something. And she's like, nothing is reported there. And then just at that moment, he brushes back some leaves and uncovers the bare legs of a dead body. Dun, dun. So now, we are with CSU Captain Judith Cyper, who is filling in Stabler, saying the killer went out of his way to screw us on this one because the body's been out there for a few days. The crime scene is quite literally cold. And Stabler says, well, points for creativity. I've never seen a perp cordon off their own crime scene. And Cyper's like, you can kind of get police tape anywhere, so it's really not that hard. And I was like, yeah, I actually have some right here. I can, like, see police <laughs> tape where I am right now from when we did a photo shoot. Yeah, um, like, if you're a true sociopath, that's, like, a prank you can pull on someone is yeah, putting crime tape around their house. Exactly. And in this show, we've done, we've had people buy full cop uniforms, like, impersonate myriad professions. So easy to get police tape. You can get uniforms and shit too. So the woman has no ID. She died of strangulation. Melinda said she was probably sexually assaulted as well, but she's been out here for a long time. So we won't really know until the autopsy. And 
they point out that her fingernails were clipped post-mortem. And Stabler's like, how do you guys know that? And then Benson, who is now here and she's with the body, she's like- A real girly girl. Yeah, her and Melinda just fuse their girl power knowledge together. And they're like, lady shit. She has a fresh mani-pedi. No one cuts their nails down after a fresh mani. Like, get with it. So they know what has happened. This person knows forensics. They put up this crime scene tape. They're like, maybe we're looking for a cop. And that's how this cold open ends. And I really love that this show, Benson and Stabler will a lot of times be like, maybe it's a cop, you know? Like, and so many other, like, whenever it is a cop that did it, you don't find out for forever because no one will ever even think of that, you know? Like, and in other shows, that's always a huge twist. Like, it was one of us because no one ever suspects that it's cops. But Benson and Stabler are like, oh, we're very well aware that cops are trash sometimes. So they're always like, could be one of us. Um, So now we're at the morgue and Melinda and Benson are gazing at the dead body through a window. And Melinda is convinced that this is like an inside job. This guy just did everything right. There's no fluids. There's no hair. There's no prints. And then he must have uh, choked her while holding something over her mouth because Melinda did find one thing, which was a fiber in the victim's mouth or throat. And it is oil skin cotton. And she must have aspirated the fiber during the attack. Like he went, it's from whatever he held over her mouth. And she says it could be from a raincoat, gloves. And the bruise pattern means the person that strangled her did it with their left hand. So it's a left-handed person. And then after he killed this woman, he, and we we say he, it's uh, nine times out of 10, it's a man. Uh, After this person killed her, he rubbed her down with rubbing alcohol and gave her a douche. And I was like, yikes, yikes. I just, um, I don't like the word. I don't like to think about it happening with rubbing alcohol, just all all over, not fun for me. I like Um, calling people douche lords though. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As an insult, I like it fine. As a process to clean out your vagina. I don't like the idea of it. Um, Especially because I think douching is like completely unnecessary and like created. Yeah, but then like porn stars do do that. Sure. So it depends like what your trade is, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's um, encouraged. I feel like just like Vagisil, like create it. Like you've got to be doing this, ladies. If you're not, you're not fresh down there. And it's like, Everything is marketing. Yeah. Like razor, like women didn't shave before advertising execs said, you guys are gross. And then that was that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why it's so silly that people who think they're like, they're just such marks for companies and government. It's so weird, you know? Like you're so, you hold, like these people hold these beliefs so strong, but it's, they're not even real. Like you're just simping for advertising execs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like your whole frame of mind is built on people tricking you to make money and you think that you're like this clever person. Right. Yeah. That's against like women having hairy arms, but really you just love advertising. Well, you love money. Yeah. Um, Did that make sense? Should I, I didn't even smoke a bowl, if you guys are wondering. <laughs> People are like, wow, something switched. Keep it in. Keep it in. <laughs> so uh, Melinda says that also she found a small piece of latex and you can tell, like, from a condom and you can tell that it's a, like that the condom broke from the tear pattern on this small piece and the brand she was able to match it to the brand which is called Twisted Desire. Now I know in a former episode Rough Rider condoms ended up being real. We thought they were fake and they were real. So of course I googled Twisted Desire to see if they were real. They're not real, but Trojan does have something called Twisted Pleasure. So check it out. What is now, it? Does it emit heat? <laughs> 
Yeah, Which no, I, <laughs> I think it's like the the contouring of the condom is like, you know, ribbed in like oh, a yeah, twist because, yeah. ooh, that's going to feel better. It's like, mm, no, it's probably not. Um, Anyway, they also get a match on the victim prints and they finally identify this poor dead woman as Rebecca Wheeler. She lives at Claremont on 107th and her time of death was sometime last week and she ate right before she was killed because Melinda found a bunch of undigested sushi in her stomach. So find out what time she ate, you'll get her time of death. So now we're at Rebecca's apartment. And they- that's straight from a forensic files. Like, that shit's real. Yeah. Like, they they do contents of stomach to solve crimes. I remember for sure. Michael Badden doing that all the time, like yeah. figuring out the stomach stuff. Yeah. Or like where so- the maggots are in their growth. Really uh- cool. Love forensic science. <laughs> At Rebecca's apartment, they do find the sushi receipts. Friday night, 8.05, she got a bunch of sushi, obviously enough for two, so she was eating with another person. Cragen is there, and he thinks it could still be a cop. Rebecca has all this stuff up on her wall, like, stop police brutality, free Pedro Sanchez. So she's somehow involved in, you know, the justice system. And Huang is there, ready to profile. He says this killer is organized, intelligent, and has a good knowledge of forensics. Their post-crime behavior was meticulous, like the way he sanitized the body. And then Benson finds a turkey baster in the bathtub. That's the most SVU line I've ever typed. But you know what else it could be? The housewives. What do you mean? Well, there was a vibrator in the chicken that one time. Oh, so my God. I'm just saying, like, turkey baster in the bathtub is the most SVU line, but it could very easily be a housewife Easily moment. be a housewife. Easily. <laughs> easily. These women are shitting all over the place on luxury vacations. Trust, it could be anything. So Benson thinks the perp probably filled that with rubbing alcohol, and that was used for, like, the douche. And it's like, uh, we connected it with the turkey baster, but she's hammering the point home. And Stabler's like, why not just dump the body in the river and, like, let all the evidence just, you know, wash away. And Huang's like, because he cared about her. He laid her gently in the park. He posed her. He covered her with leaves. This person cared about her. So the crime scene tape was a message to the cops that he's smarter than them. And then we find out that Rebecca was taking grad courses in criminal justice at Wallace University, which is a university on the show we have not heard of before. And maybe we, we, maybe we hear again, never again. I mean, have to, I'll have to keep my eyes open for Wallace as we keep going with our podcast, but it doesn't ring any bells. So they go to Wallace. They speak to her professor. His name is Javier Vega, and he is played by James McDaniel. This man has an extensive IMDb. I know that he's very famous for being a regular on NYPD Blue back in the day. He was one of the regular people on that. So famous working actor. And he says, everyone loved Rebecca. And Stabler's like, yeah, but she did go missing for a week. Like, and no one reported it. Like, what? And he's like, she was taking time off to finish her thesis. And then they were asking, like, does she have a boyfriend? Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I don't think she dates that much. And what about her police record? She has a charge for obstruction. That's how they got her prints. And he explains, like, that was dropped. She was interviewing an ex-con and she got caught in a drug sweep. So... And they're like, okay, what? How did she hang out with a lot of ex-cons? And Vega's like, I don't like your tone. It sounds like you're referring to ex-cons as lepers. And Benson's like, no, no, we just like want to know what's up. Like, he tells her that Rebecca's thesis is on convict reentry and how the system sets up ex-convicts to fail when they come back out of incarceration. And Smug Stabler, like, he's got that look on his face, and he goes, how so? Like, because he, you know, believes every criminal is a horrible person because he's got that angel devil shit from his Catholic upbringing and that there's no nuance and no one can be rehabilitated. So the guy goes, well, they get dropped off from Rikers with $5. And then he says, quote, and all the whores and dealers lined up to take it from them. So they don't exactly 
get a head start when they head out of prison. And Rebecca was trying to help them. And they're like, well, did she see any sex offenders? And he says, well, rapists are almost impossible to rehabilitate. She wanted uneducated screw-ups and junkies, and she wanted to help them get their lives together. And he doesn't really know about any specific inmates he she was working with. She just gives them the name Kyle Lerman and says, that's her research partner. He'll know what you're looking for. So we go talk to Kyle Lerman and he's like, crackheads, speed freaks, and muggers. She interviewed every inmate at Sing Sing within six months of their release. And he seems like he's like, her job was like, she's a bleeding heart. Like, I didn't really care about her stuff. Like, I care about the numbers and like the, you know, the math of it all because he's a dork. And then he gives Benson all the records. And his alibi for Friday night is that he got so wasted and his friends had to pour him into bed. And it's like, you seem like you'd be like a really whiny drunk. You know what I mean? He seems like a guy who would just get drunk and be like, "Uh, no one wants to kiss me. You know, he just seems uh, like that. And so he says what I just said. He's like, I crunched the numbers. Rebecca does the people work. And he tells the story about how Rebecca helped a guy who relapsed because he found out his kid had cancer, like right as he got out of jail. And she even got in bed with him to help him with like the withdrawal symptoms. But then they're like, well, where's he? And he's like, dead. He died. He OD'd a week later. So it's like, why are you telling them this story? Like, He's not the killer. I don't know why this story is like relevant. So then there's another guy who he sensitively calls a crackhead. Well, it's to set up their perception of Rebecca that she's just like, you know, opening up for all these, for all yes. the ex-cons. Yeah. That she's, that she's just like too trusting, um, too into them or whatnot. Too willing to do anything to help. Yeah. Yeah. So then Kyle starts telling them the story about this crackhead. They say crackhead in this episode a thousand times. I'm not using that word. I'm like repeating what's being said in the episode. Oh, is that not a good word to use? I don't know. I feel like it seems insensitive, JK, doesn't JK. it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I, yeah. Um, all the there's so many bad words where it's like, can they just mean something different so we can yeah. use them? That's how I feel yeah. at times. But. <laughs> but. Whatever. Um, well, also because you say crackhead about people and then it's like, but they do heroin. That's not crack. So like, I don't know. There's all these different... They, it feels like crackhead uh, encompasses a lot of people on this show. Yeah. Anyway, this guy was trying to get clean and he was obsessed with Rebecca. Whenever she walked into Sing Sing, he'd give her a big hug, tell her how much he loved her. And that creeped Kyle out. And Rebecca was actually fine with him until he tried to kiss her. And then she walked out. But then two days later, she was back helping this guy. Who is this guy? His name is Rudy something. Okay, so in the next scene, uh, we find out that the guy's name is Rudy Lemke. He's got a long rap sheet of crimes, mostly like, you know, mostly sort of petty crimes, drugs, theft, stuff like where he's in jail for, uh, he's in prison for a year to to 18 months or something. And uh, she gave Rudy her phone number so that he could like call her at any time. So they were in touch. And Cragen goes, quote, sounds like she got off talking to bad boys. And I'm like, or she just wants to help people. Everyone is just shitting on this woman who wants to help people. I wouldn't call like like people with serious drug problems bad boy. Ooh, a bad boy. Ooh. Like, I don't think that's what was going on with this woman. So he got paroled two weeks ago and he's at his wife's, it turns out. And they go to the apartment and the wife obviously has like, I've barely seen him since he got out of prison. He came around here trying to have sex. And I was like, I'm with Dre now. And I like her. She's got a fun attitude. And Benson's like, well, the parole board thinks he's here. And she's like, well, what am I supposed to do? Just like let him rot in jail if he has nowhere else to go? And Benson's like, yeah, but lying about his place of residence is like a big no-no. He's going to have to go back to prison now because he violated his parole. And Stabler's like, and also if he committed a crime while he was out, you're an accessory. And I don't know if like, I think that's Stabler. 
I think that's Stabler pushing it. And she goes, are you playing me? And Stabler's like, why don't you fuck around and find out? And so she tells them, when I kicked him out, I said, go sleep at St. Anne's with like the homeless people. So now they're at St. Anne's homeless shelter. Which um, is something I learned recently that like getting into shelters and all the rules and all of that is actually very hard. Yeah. And that a lot of people that are unhoused prefer to be on the streets than within the shelters because people steal from them. Yeah, there's a lot of crime. Sometimes you have to pay for a bed to get in there. Oh, really? Yeah, there's just like, it's just not as, I mean, it's like most things when people are dismissive of people's struggles and it's like, why don't you just go do that? And it's like, well, actually, it's really hard to do that or yeah, um, yeah, yeah. it's hard to follow these rules or you can't be gay if it's in a church or whatever it is. Um, Yeah. There's just like barriers to a shelter, even though they make it seem like it's this easy thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And, um, or a pleasant thing too. Yeah, and Because I remember... I volunteered at, like, um, a shelter once for domestic violence, and it's, like, a lot of the women didn't like the rules. It's, like, they come from these, like, abusive places, and then they have to follow all these rules, and sometimes it's too oppressive, and it's, like, there's just... I don't know. Shit's tough. Yeah. Because at the same time, without rules, you know, isn't shit gonna, like, just run amok? Like, I just think it makes people... It's, like, easier than for people to blame these people for individual flaws than, like, see it as a system. Because even when you talk about women, it's like, well, why didn't you leave? Go to a shelter. And it's like... Because you have to be in by 9 o'clock and I work a night job and I don't know, like, whatever it is. It's just like... I just... I only learned that recently about the homeless shelters that they're actually, like, not as... I mean, the Pursuit of Happiness kind of cover, like, showed that a little bit. Oh, I never saw that. You remember Saw That Movie with Will Smith? No, I didn't like the way that happiness was spelled in the title and I wouldn't see it. <laughs> I knew it. Well, also Curly Sue, remember her little ring gets stolen, you know? Yeah. Okay. It always goes back to Curly Sue. Always. <laughs> I love little Curly this Sue. This is not the first time I've brought up Curly Sue on this podcast. <laughs> There's no fucking way. All right. Um, I interrupted again in a weird stoner okay. moment. I don't know what's happening to me. Talk about I think Rudy. it's very appropriate for this very special 420 episode. I also love the name Rudy. Rudy. We have a friend who has a little girl named Rudy. It's a cute-ass name. So at the St. Anne's Homeless Shelter, Benson and Stabler are there kind of helping their uh, their BFF, Sister Peg. Uh, Stabler's like moving a huge pot or something. And he's like, oh, what, did you get tired of handing out condoms to the hookers? And it's like, Stabler, why is everyone being so rude to people who help people in this episode? <laughs> like, everyone's just like trying to help people. And they're like, yeah, these people. Because it's about and, law and order and punishment. Yeah, crime and punishment. And... Sister Peg just gives out condoms. She doesn't do anything else of value. Anyway, she goes, I go where my girls go. We love, we love Sister Peg. And they show her a pic of uh, Rudy and Stabler kind of manipulates her and is like, well, we think he killed and raped a Sister Peg type, like someone like you who was just out here trying to help out ex-convicts. And like, because of that, Sister Peg's like, okay, fine. He, there he is. He's over there. Um, he's the guy with the shopping cart. So they go try to talk to him. He obviously freaks, pushes his shopping cart at Stabler, but then tries to escape. Benson slams his ass against the wall. It's rivaling WWE over here at the homeless shelter. And then we, <laughs> we see Rudy is played by Dougie Doug, an actor who is from Cool Runnings. 
uh, a, a very well-known actor, and that was like one of his big movies. So they they grab Rudy, and they're like, oh, is this like what you used to cart your bodies around? And he's like, what bodies? I didn't do anything. Like, he's immediately like, what did I do? Like, what's going on? And then they find, in his shopping cart, they find Vega's book about criminal justice and like, you know, of forensics and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, you trying to learn some tricks? And he's like, I'm just trying to educate myself. And they're like, more like, try to cover up your crimes. And so now... Or at the precinct. Benson- but this is also like when it's like, aren't you detectives? Can't you tell this dude is high and not it? Like not smart enough to start like rubbing alcohol, clipping nail. Like I just don't. Sometimes That's I'm like, how thing. did you become detectives? Yeah, you know this it's guy. Not him. Yeah, this guy did not do all this. Like <laughs> wrap the crime scene. This guy does not think he's smarter than the cops. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the profile that that Juan gave you. It ain't Rudy. Like, love Rudy. I want Rudy to get back on his feet. I, it's not Rudy. Um, Rudy's not the one. Um, not to give, I feel like that gives it away for people that don't even watch the episode, but <laughs> there's only a few of you. So Benson walks into the fishbowl, as Lisa calls it, and says, um, she's like, I got the cherry on the Sunday. The sushi delivery drivers remembers Rudy being at Rebecca's place. So then Benson goes in to interrogate Rudy. And he's like, what? She bought me dinner. She's my friend. Like, yes, we ate sushi together. And they're pushing this whole story that Rudy just wanted to have sex. Rebecca resisted. He killed her by accident. And then he used the book to cover everything up. And he says, he's just like, they're doing the bullying thing, screaming in his face. He's high. He doesn't know what's going on. And he he goes, I didn't mean to hurt anyone. And then they give him a piece of paper and they're like, just start writing your confession. And so, you know, they think they've got it, right? But then Cragen busts in and he goes, let me get a look at that book. So now we're in the next room and Cragen's like, you guys talk to Javier Vega? And they're like, yeah, he's the law professor. What's the big deal? Cragen's like, I collared him in 1976 for killing a woman named Joanna Lewis while he was on a three-day heroin bender and he strangled her with his left hand. They realize also that Rudy is right-handed. Didn't check any of that before they just got in Rudy's face screaming at him about how he murdered someone. And he's very high, so it's probably not him. And Cragen's like, it's Vega, it's Vega, it's Vega. And he's like, he tried to cover his ass with that crime scene gag. Like, he would know exactly how to do this. He's this professor of criminology. So they go to Vega's house, and when he doesn't answer the door, they break down the door. Closets are empty. Dressers are cleared out. This guy got out of there in a hurry, and boom, the cherry on the Sunday, as Benson says, the condoms are twisted desire. Which is so circumstantial. Like, you can't fucking use that in court. The brand of condoms is crazy circumstantial. They are sold every, probably every Dwayne Reed. So... Stabler is now downloading Cragen in a walk and talk coming from the elevator. He's like, a neighbor remembers a 2003 Lexus RX parked outside of Rebecca's apartment the night of the murder. That's Vega's same model of car. And he's like, how did the guy remember all that? And he's like, the guy's a mechanic. He talked about the car like it was Paris Hilton. Love this reference. Very 2004. Perfect. Same guy saw And you know what? I bet no one fucking thought that she'd still be relevant to this day. And here she is. Yep. Well, you know what? She had a dip in relevance, I would say. She had a dip and she's back. She's no, on the upswing. Just, just to us, but she was DJing the world, selling products in Tokyo, fucking 25 perfumes, of making billions, you know what of I mean? Of course, she's making so much money and she's successful. She's an entrepreneur. She has an entrepreneurial spirit. I'm just saying... <laughs> She wasn't like the blog fodder. Like I, when I was working in 2004, 2005, 2006, I mean, I was on Perez Hilton. I was on fucking D-listed every day reading everything about this woman. And I was just saying like, 
in the last decade, that's waned a little bit, but now she's kind of back in with her mom's on The Housewives. She got married on Peacock. You know, she's back. She's kind of back in the public eye more, I would say. And her documentary, I think. And that documentary, I think, got a lot of people to, yes, see a different side. I still have to watch it, but yes. So... This same guy, this witness, said he saw a man in a black coat and a red scarf putting a big bundle in the back of the car. And the witness said it looked like, quote, a big-ass bag of crap. And then McCragan goes, did this poet make a positive ID? And I just, I like the dialogue there. And uh, they say, you know, they're like, Vega's been clean since 88. Do you really think he's going to relapse now? And Craig is like, he's just going back to who he really is, a thug and a junkie. And Benson wants to know, did he rape the original victim? And Craigan's like, well, we don't know because he stuffed her in a steel drum. And by the time we found her, she was partially decomposed and that we were, they couldn't find evidence of that. So they're like, he's come a long way though. Like he's a professor now. And Craigan's like, well, maybe Rebecca dug up the truth about his past and he killed her to keep quiet go back to Rebecca's files, go back there and, you know, find more. So back with the dork, Kyle, at the office, <laughs> he points them to the files, but says, um, you know, she never mentioned anything about Vega's past to me and Vega never mentioned anything about his past to me. And Kyle's like putting it all together. He's like, oh, no wonder he was such a good teacher. He knew so much about prison life. I should have guessed he was in prison. And he says that the three of them, him and Rebecca and Professor Vega, used to go to Vega's house all the time for drinks and to talk about their research. But last month, Rebecca started making excuses not to go. And once she said she had concert tickets, but when he, like later that night, he found her in the office crying and she wouldn't say why. And he told her, if you have a problem with Vega, you better deal with it. Because he's a really cool, supportive partner in grad school. And she got really upset. And cool advice, Kyle. And so he told her, like, if, you, if you're really that upset, you should go talk to the dean. And now we're at the dean's office at Wallace University, and we find out that this dean hired Vega because of his past. He liked that he, like, who would be better to teach criminology than someone who's been part of the justice system, part of, you know, being has been incarcerated and then has, like, you know, worked their way to this level. So they kept it a secret because he thought parents and donors wouldn't be so open-minded. And Stabler's like, I would want my kids being taught by a murderer. And the dean's like, well, he's a changed man. Remember that prison is supposed to be for rehabilitation, not just like punishment and slave labor. And the dean cannot believe that Javier would have killed Rebecca, but he does admit that Rebecca had an appointment next week to talk to him about changing advisors. And the dean believes Vega and says, but also I did get an anonymous letter last week that demanded I fire Vega for covering up his past. How exactly did he cover it up? I don't really know. He didn't change his name. Like, his, it's all probably public record. Like, he just didn't mention it. I don't think that's a cover-up. You know what I mean? I agree. Yeah. Benson and Stabler discuss the possibility of rehabilitating killers, and she wonders if it's, like, actually possible. And then Stabler goes, who knows? But then he makes his opinion very clear, and he goes, once a killer, always a killer. So it's like, well, it sounds like you know. You know your opinion about that. And Benson's like, what about all that Catholic forgiveness? Remember the Catholic forgiveness that all those pedophile priests keep getting? And he's like, well, Jesus was perfect. I'm not and a stabler quote for the ages, really. Uh, suddenly, I'm surprised that he doesn't have that body, that tattooed on his body somewhere. Suddenly, Stabler sees in the file that Javier has a daughter named Gabrielle. We didn't know about this. And guess what? She's a grad student right here at Wallace University where her dad teaches. So now we're walking and talking with her and it's Zoe Saldana. And she is so pretty. I don't know what I know her from. What do you know her from? She's just, in, she's just famous. Well, Crossroads. What? 
Crossroads. But I think her big thing was Avatar and she's in Guardians of the Galaxy because there's like a meme about how like she's in two like billion dollar grossing like franchises. The Galaxy and Avatar. But I don't know. There must be something between this SVU and Crossroads and Avatar. But we're not thinking She's done a ton of stuff. She's done a ton of stuff. Well, I know people were mad at her because she was playing someone. She was playing Nina Simone and people were like really mad because they had to color her darker. You know what I mean? Oh, because she's like, she's like, yeah. Yeah. She was in the TV show Six Degrees, I guess. I, I like, honestly, this is a blind spot actor for me. I remember her from Center Stage. I do remember that. That's one of her first movies, yes, Center Stage. She was anorexic, right? Yes, I think so. I'm looking I at the rest Center of her. Stage. The rest of her IMDb is just really not my stuff. Like, it's just not stuff I've watched, but. Yeah, it's a lot I of think Avatar. She's gorgeous. And oh I God. saw her on Corden when I went to be in the audience one time when my husband worked on that show. So I've seen her up Hold close on. and she's pretty. Dude, so in post production is Avatar The Way of the Water, Avatar 3, 4, and 5. <laughs> and then also in post production is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and an untitled uh, Star Trek is in pre production. Truly could quit working right now, never have to lift a finger the rest of her life. Crazy. Oh my God. Yeah, I've never seen so many post-production credits like or pre-production credits. Like so many things in the works. Did you see the Jamie Lee Curtis quote recently where she they were like, would you do Marvel or superheroes? She's like, I mean, sure, but I'm scared they would just have me in a warehouse covered in dots acting in a green screen. <laughs> and I just thought that was funny. Wait, Talking did you see ball. the Jamie Lee uh, Curtis Of course thing. I did. Tell them <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so you've probably seen it. It went viral, but it was so funny. She had like, she had Leah Michelle, a, a, a hated person on her podcast. And she goes- And with uh, James Groff, he was there too. Oh yeah, was with like James the three Groff. Of and, them. Goes, and did you guys win any Tonys? And she goes, we won eight Tony Awards. And Jamie Lee Curtis goes, but you didn't, Leah. And it's one of the funniest things. It's well, such to me, shade. I'm wondering if it's like, you know, joyful shade or if it's like, oh, we worked on Scream Queens and you're a dumb bitch and I want to make sure you know it. Like, that's my curiosity I would love to know. It'll be the first thing I ask when I meet Jamie Lee Curtis one day. Um... So... Being on The Housewives does make her more attainable. We just have to go to a a child hospital charity event. Let's just get a table at an event. We'll find her. Yeah. We'll get to her. Yeah, Lindsay Lohan really loves her. I think Jamie Lee Curtis is, um, like, a beloved figure in... Oh, yeah, and she's married to Christopher Guest, who's one of my favorite people of all time. I didn't know that they were married. That's fun. Crazy, right? Power couple. I don't think people knew that. You really did a lot. I can't believe she's never been in any of his movies. I think she'd be fun in like, in like, in those. Maybe they don't want to work together. Improv-y movies. Yeah, that's true. Um, Maybe they need to keep their marriage fresh and not go to work together. Yeah. Another. Huge aside for me and Lisa. Back to the episode. I know, episode. but I'm happy to know about this Christopher Guest I thing. know, this is Frances important. Frances McDormand's married to one of the Cohen brothers, which yes. I like too. I like yeah. these, um, But that whatever. makes, like, I mean, that's not crazy because you see her in all of their movies. You know that's what I mean? True. Like, <laughs> you're kind of like, ah, she got to marry one of them, you know? Um, so, 
Zoe Saldana is playing his daughter and they're doing a very fast walk and talk with her. And she's like, I don't know where he is, but I know he didn't kill anyone. And they're like, okay, well then why did she run? And and she says, because he knew that when you found out about his record, you would all you would see is an ex-con and you would suspect him. And they're like, well, he did murder someone 30 years ago. And she's like, I don't know that person. My father found out about me after my mom died. She went to see him in prison. That's why he got clean and started going to school, wrote her every day, worked really hard to make a good life for her. And she says that was a stupid mistake he made when he was a kid. And Benson's like, well, it's like murder, not turnstile jumping, but okay. And then Zoe was like, well, he was a different person when he was high. He's been clean for 16 years, but you guys do not give a shit about that. And Benson's like, well, either way, we need to find him so we can clear him. And Zoe's like, well, I'm actually a law student and I know you bitches lie all the time. So even if I knew where he was, I wouldn't tell you. And then Stabler goes right for the humiliation factor because we're at her place of business right now. We're like at her where law firm or wherever she's working. And he starts screaming, does anyone know this man? Has anyone seen this man? And like showing a photo of her dad. And she's like, you guys are assholes. And then she goes, search all you want. He left the country. And so now we're filling Craig in again at the precinct. And they're like, we don't think he left the country. There's nothing on flights, nothing at the borders. Like, we don't think this guy left or maybe he hasn't left yet. And Stabler is like, I think he's still in New York because I think he doesn't want to leave his daughter behind. And they're like, oh, do you think she's dumb enough to be hiding him? I think she would do anything for him. And Cragen's like, bring her in. I'll talk to her. And Stabler's like, are you sure, bro? You seem a little, quote unquote, involved. And Cragen's like, yeah, he raped and murdered an innocent young girl. Of course I'm involved. And then they're like, Boom, a car in Queens just spotted his car. Cragen runs for the door, even though Stabler says he can handle it. So you can tell that there's something personal about this for Cragen. This is a Cragen-heavy episode. Daddy Craigs. So in Queens, they are inspecting Vega's car. Benson gets in and sniffs around and insists that he's been traveling with an older woman because her little bloodhound nose smells lilies and roses and that no one over 60 wears that kind of perfume. And uh, Stabler's kind of like, you don't think his daughter could have worn that perfume? And Benson's like, Gabrielle wears sandalwood and bergamot. And then she goes, women notice these things. And I'm like, I do not. I actually have a very good nose for perfumes. If it's a perfume, I know I'll be like, are you wearing Michael Kors? Are you wearing Ralph Lauren? Are you wearing, I can smell perfumes very well, but I don't know notes. I don't know what they're made out of. Like, oh, is that gardenia? Like, I don't no, know that No, but I can, I can always sense like a rose action. I feel like roses oh, are really? um, kind of. And lilies um, do have strong. a very distinct, but I would not know sandalwood and bergamot. Not me. But you know, the, yeah. And then I can smell vanilla. Yeah, the food ones. Um, so <laughs> they spot a bus stop nearby. Did you ever have the sprays from the drugstores that like smelled like cotton candy or um, I had a gummy bear one? I had a cotton candy hair hair um, spray that I yeah. used to use when I smoked when I was like a teen. Not like a teen, but like in my late tw- teens and early 20s, I would spray it in my hair because my hair soaks up so much smell yeah. that I didn't want my mom to like smell cigarettes on me. And I always had like, cotton candy hair perfume or whatever. Yeah. So funny. We were just a bunch of little sweet sugar babies. Um, Okay. So they spot a bus stop nearby. They go talk to the driver who tells them that her route goes by a ton of cemeteries. Stabler's like, give me your newspaper. They look up Rebecca's funeral was that morning. So boom, boom, boom. They're putting it together. He must've been carrying flowers. She was wrong about the perfume. He was going to see her Well, that's what's crazy to me. Perfume and fresh flowers smell so different. And I don't even yes. think fresh flowers linger. No. That, like, that to me is bad. It's, they, SVU failed it's in It's, like, silly. There. And it's, like, trying to, I think they're trying to do a bunch of moments where, like, Benson 
is smarter than Stabler because she's a woman. Like the the nail polish, the flower perfume stuff. Like it's like women have a lot more observant powers than men do in a lot of ways, you know? My husband notices fucking nothing, you know? So I think they're trying to make that point, I guess. Anyway, they're like, he's at Rebecca's gravesite. So they go there. They find that Vega standing by the gravesite with flowers in his hand. He's got his passport on him. They arrest him. He doesn't recognize Cragen right away, but Cragen goes, it'll come back to you. And then they Mirandize Vega and take him away. In interrogation, it's come back to Vega. And he's like, Cragen, I should have known you were behind this, which is like a, such a comic book line. I should have known it was you behind this. And Vega said he had no choice but to run. You guys were going to decide I was guilty as soon as you heard that I was an ex-con. And he says he didn't do this and someone is setting him up. Rebecca and he, Cragen points out, Rebecca was strangled by a lefty. She was raped by someone using your brand of condoms and dumped by someone driving your car. So it's a lot. But if he's so smart, why would he repeat all those patterns? Like he's smart enough to set all that up, but he would do it the exact same way. Exactly. And Vega says that. He goes, I've spent the last 20 years studying crime. Wouldn't I have covered my tracks better? Like it's true. If he would have wanted to kill someone, he'd be like, the first thing he would have said is, I'm going to change my MO. I'm going to shoot them. I'm going to stab them. Like I'm going to not do the same exact thing I did to this woman, you know, years ago. But he's like, well, you tried to cover your tracks. And he, I mean, he did. The person did. So, so he's like, what about the motive? Why would I kill Rebecca? I loved her. She loved me. We were going to get married. So this is the first time we find out that they were like, you know, involved. But no one has even suggested this yet. Uh, And then Cragen is like, well, well, then why was she changing advisors? And Vega's like, I told her to. A student sleeping with her professor just like looks bad. It would be better for both of us. And then they say, but her prints were lifted off this letter that was sent to the dean outing you as a murderer. And he looks at the letter and he's like, there's no way she wrote that. He, he's like, I had no reason to kill her. She had no reason to write that letter. And he told her everything about his past months ago. And then Cragen gets real close, like stabler level close and goes, I remember when we collared you for murdering Joanna Lewis and you cried like a baby. You lied about it, but your prints were all over the drum where you stuffed her. And he's like, that was my past. I'm a different man, just like you. And then he goes, I remember you. You were a drunk. You changed, didn't you, Captain? You think you're the only one who can? And then Cragen is like, all right, noted. I'm listening. And Vega's like, listen, I was at Rebecca's the night she died, but when I left, she was alive. And then Vega goes, ask Rudy Lemke. He was at Rebecca's house that night. I dropped him off at the Lydia Hotel to crash for the night, and he'll tell you she was alive when we left. What I don't understand, though, is why didn't Vega report her missing? All of her friends thought that she was like working on her thesis, but he would have spoken to her while she was working on her thesis for a week, right? His girlfriend? Yeah, but if someone was like, I'm going to go write at a cabin for three days, like, I don't know if I would be suspicious if I didn't hear from them for three days. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it's just something that popped into my head. So... At the precinct, Stabler says that Vega's lying because no one at the Lydia Hotel remembers him but or Rudy. But it's like, first of all, he dropped off Rudy, so he wouldn't have even gone inside. Second of all, the Lydia Hotel we've gone to before and is like a full roach motel where like the people behind it are not like paying attention to people coming and going. Like, I don't think that's like a smoking gun that he's lying. But anyway, Cragen can't believe he allowed himself to believe Vega for a second. And now Casey Novak's on the scene and she's like, you guys got to find Rudy. And they're like, well, Finn put the word out on the street. Every crackhead and dealer knows we're looking for him. Like again, so much crackhead. And anyway, as usual, Casey is there to like fully blow up their lives. And she says, everything you have is circumstantial. 
his past murder can't really be used unless Petrovsky allows me to bring up prior bad acts. And I don't know if she's going to do that. And Novak is like, I'm not saying I can't win it. I'm just saying I really want Rudy. And they're like, we'll get him. And then Novak's like, Craig's, can I talk to you for a second? And now we kind of find out why this has been so personal. Novak wants to know why in 1975, Vega got a grand theft auto charge, but the prosecutor like dropped the charges because the arresting officer recommended leniency. And the arresting officer was Captain Cragen when he was a little baby boy. And he says, the ki- he was a kid. He seemed serious about cleaning up his act. And then Novak's like, but then he didn't clean up his act and he killed Joanna Lewis. And he, she's like, I just want to make sure that there's not like a personal vendetta going on here where you want to like make up for this mistake you made in the past. And he's like, I just want him to go to jail because he did it and he did the wrong thing. So now we're in court. Vega's on the stand. He fully admits he killed Joanna Lewis. He was 19, high on heroin, and he didn't know what he was doing. He served his time. And for the, and his lawyer points out that for the last seven months, he's donated $500 a month to the Joanna Lewis Memorial Fund, which the court did not ask him to do. He just does it because it's right. And he hopes he can use his mistakes to teach others. And that's why he like became a professor. And he said Rebecca was smart and generous and he was in love with her and could never have killed her. And then Novak approaches in some knee-high boots and a knee-length skirt. Did you, did you clock this look? I didn't clock it, but it made me smile as soon as you said it. Yeah, it was like a little, it was very fall 2004. I can tell, remember when she told us that her outfits were always bad and then they tried to make her a little bit hipper? I can tell this is them trying to go into the like, the away from like the just gray skirt suit look. Um, and anyway, she immediately starts showing photos of Joanna's neck versus Rebecca's neck. They look the same. Then she shows the condom fragment and says, this is your brand. Shows the fiber that's the same material as his coat. And She's then the very le- smug here. She's very yes. smug. She's yeah, this is, in this the is bag. peak Novak. Yeah. And no, peak Novak is in mean. Let's be honest. <laughs> What's oh, your birthstone? Screaming. No, the yeah, birthstone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is good Novak. But that's season four. That's behind her. Oh, I can't wow. believe Casey's peaked. I cannot believe Casey's peaked by five. No, um, you're right. You're right. <laughs> so, um, and then she shows the letter and that Rebecca looks like she wrote it because her fingerprints are all over it. And if she didn't write it, who did? And he goes, why don't you ask the cops? So he implies that he's being framed by the cops. And then Casey goes, so the police knew your brand of condom, put the piece of it inside of Rebecca, jammed a fiber down her throat. And like, you know, she is being a good lawyer. Like that is a that is a far walk for a lot of jurors to go on that that, that police were that conspiratorial. And he screams, I did not kill her. Like he screams it twice and then he stares daggers at Novak and his daughter, Zoe Saldana, is in the courtroom looking not happy. And in the next scene, we're at the precinct and Cragen comes in and says, jury came back in an hour and convicted on all counts. So we think we're done, but we know we're not because we're not even halfway through the show. Or we are, but we're not done. Sister Peg walks in and goes, is it true you're looking for Rudy? And it's like, the amount of time that they would have been looking for Rudy and when a court case happens, it's like, they act like it happened in two days. <laughs> and, and Benson's like, the trial's over. And she knows where he is, Sister Peg, but she wants to make sure he's protected. He was innocent. You pushed him over the edge. You spread his name around town. Now all the dealers think he's a rat. And Benson's like, we'll straighten things out on the street. And I would love to know how they plan to do that. And they're, she's like, after we talk to Rudy... And then Sister Peg's like, fine. And she takes them to Rudy. And we are talking to Rudy. And he goes, the professor is telling the truth. He did drop me off at the hotel. Obviously, he's been using drugs and is spotty on the time. And he goes, 
Maybe it was right after nine, after the professor and Rebecca were done duking it out. And so we find out they were fighting that night about letting Rudy stay on the couch. He didn't want a crackhead sleeping on his girlfriend's couch. Again, crackhead. And he said, yeah, they were all lovey-dovey. They were getting married. Rebecca told him that. So now we know that he wasn't, you know, creating this romantic relationship. And So my uh, brain, as you were talking, went to making of a murder, you know? Like, it's kind of connected in a way. Um, And then it reminded me that in Edinburgh this past year, there's a making of a murder musical, the musical. Oh my gosh. So go wow. That. <laughs> that is fun. I would love to see that. Um, So they're begging Rudy. They're like, you gotta think. We need to know the time he dropped you off. Rudy does not remember, but he does remember that it stopped raining on their way over there. So, okay. They checked the weather service. The rain stopped at 922, but the witness puts the Lexus at the house at 1130. So he must have gone back to kill her. So go talk to this witness again and just double check. So they go back and they talk to this witness and he's like, I'm positive. It was 1130 and the Simpsons had just ended and I got up to close my window and I saw a guy in a coat put a big ass bundle into the Lexus and then he shows them he was parked right there. And then right as that happens, a guy blows the light and they realize that there's a red light camera there. So they're like, all right, let's go check this red light camera and see if it maybe caught Vegas car or whatever. So they go there, they see that Alexis was gone at nine-ish, like that That backs up Vega's story, but then it's back at 11-ish, so he must have come back to kill her, as they said. And then Benson is like, let's just check the license plate really quick, which I don't even think that they, that's extra due diligence, I feel like, um, because it's the same exact make and model of the car, color, everything. Benson goes, can you blow that up? And the guy goes, enhancing, which reminds me of this episode of Adam Ruins Everything where I first learned that all this shit is bullshit, like that you cannot enhance images like that. It just like is impossible. And um, do you know Siobhan um, Thompson? She's like a comedian and and more of like a sketch comedian, but she is like British and she played the like, edgy CSU tech with like, you know, an asymmetrical haircut. And she's like, enhance, enhance, because she's British. So she goes, enhance, enhance. And like, and it reminded me, it's like the exact scene. And it's just bullshit. You cannot like just enhance, you cannot just blow up a picture of a license plate and then all the pixels fade away and it's a clear picture. Um, But anyway, I love it for this show. They double check the plates and they realize, done, done, twist. These are two different cars. They have different license plates. And one of them is Vegas car, obviously. And the other one is from a rental car agency. So they go to this agency. The guy gives them the rental agreement. The license is fake. You can't even see the picture of who rented it. And they're like, you don't want us to bust you for renting to unlicensed people, do you? And the guy's like, let's play. Let's make a deal. He's like, we put GPS trackers into the more expensive cars. I can tell you where this car was at all times. So they look at the record of the car and they see that whoever drove it, drove it to Rebecca's house and probably straight into Central Park. And so that is the killer. Now they have to find this car. So like, where is it? Cragen, back with Cragen, he feels really bad that he bought into this whole frame job. And he tells them, tear apart the rental car. I'll go talk to Vega. And the next scene, Vega is obviously very unhappy. He is screaming at Cragen. He's like, a mistake, a mistake. And Cragen is apologetic, but Vega is still very, very pissed. And he's like, are you going to bring Rebecca back? Are you going to get my career back for me? And then Cragen can tell from like the way that he's, acting that he's using again. And Vega doesn't deny it. He's like, it just makes the time go quicker in here. And Cragen's like, you need to get clean. I can get you help. And Vega's like, your help put me in here. And he asks, who do you, who killed Rebecca? And Cragen's like, probably someone who wanted to hurt you. Do you have any, any ideas? And he's like, not aside from the NYPD. So then 
Kragen goes to Novak and is like, we got to get Vega out right now. And she's like, yeah, well, I'm getting him out tomorrow morning. And she, she, he's like, no, not soon enough. It's got to be now. And Rikers can't get him to court till the morning. And he's like, I'll call in a favor. I'll get Vega to court if you can get the motion on the calendar. And Kragen is like very much beating himself up over this. And Novak is like, you were just doing your job. Everyone's trying to tell him it's not his fault, but he obviously is pissed at himself. So they dismiss the charges against Vega. Zoe Saldana stink-eyeing Captain Kragen very aggressively. Petrovsky sets aside the verdict with the court's apologies. Zoe sidles up to Kragen and goes, do you own a home, Captain? Because they are suing him, baby. $12 million in damages. They're suing him, the department, the whole, the whole gang. So then Kragen goes outside and he's not scared to face the press. He just like walks out into what looks like a barrage of uh, flashing light bulbs and, you know, screaming reporters. So then they at the garage where they found the rental car. They're dismantling this car and O'Halloran is there and they're like, we've really found nothing. Like, there's nothing here. Then they find nail clippers with the nail clipping in it of the same nail polish color that she was wearing with her brand new manicure. And he dusts it and boom, there's a fingerprint on the nail clippers. I don't know how this guy wasn't wearing gloves the whole time. He literally douched someone with rubbing alcohol, but okay. Now, Cypher is running the print. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And Craigan's like, expand the search. And then they get a hit on the print and it belongs to, dun, dun, the dorky research partner, Kyle. At this point, Fuck I, you, Kyle. At this point, I honestly was almost thinking that it was Zoe Saldana. And she was like, get away from my dad. Like, he's mine. I didn't have enough time with him. And like, you know, I think that that's happened before on the show. But in my mind, I was like, oh, it's going to be Zoe Saldana. And other little dork helpers. It's been other dork helpers before, too. Yes. There's like a church episode where that's coming to mind. Yes. So... They and I'm go- sure Kyle wanted to fuck Rebecca, too. I'm yeah. sure that was it. Like, fucking... Of course. It. So they go to his place and he's gone. There are tons of pics of Vega and Rebecca together. So he was obviously stalking Vega and or Rebecca. And he must have grabbed the condoms when he was at Vega's house for drinks one of these times because he goes there all the time. Then Zoe Saldana shows up at the precinct and she's like, please help my dad. And Cragen's like, I really can't talk to you, ma'am. Like, you're suing me. So good day. And then she's like, no, wait, look, he left this note. I'm worried he might be taking his own life. And then they read the letter and it says something like, I hope you can forgive me one final sin for justice. So now they're realizing, uh-oh, Lerman did not leave town. Vega kidnapped him. So he must have taken him somewhere emotionally significant. And they're like, what about Central Park where he left Rebecca's body? So now they head over to that area and there's already a standoff when we get there between Vega and the cops. And the Vega has Lerman held hostage and he's holding a teeny tiny gun up to him and like, you know, holding him hostage and Lerman's begging for help. And Vega forces Lerman to confess like he has got, but he does have a gun on him. So I don't feel like, It's like, you're a criminology professor. You know that that's not how you get a confession. So this guy is saying that he went over there to give her one more chance and then he killed her spontaneously with this whole fucking plan. He had rubbing alcohol. He had the rental car that looked like Vega's. I mean, this guy went over there to kill her, right? Like, this is a full plan that's been hatched. You're 100% right, but maybe he would be okay not doing the plan if she had sex with him. Like, I don't I don't really know. But he did yeah. really... He planned for the rejection, yes. Yeah, because it's like, he if the car came, If he went and killed her that night and then he rented the car the next day, because she, she could have been dead in her apartment for a while. Obviously, no one was looking for her for some reason. So, like, it's just weird. Yeah, like, I don't know. That doesn't really click for me. This guy went over there to kill her. It wasn't like, well, we, you know... 
she didn't want this nerd dick. Um, so Cragen is trying to talk Vega off the ledge. Like, come on, don't do this. Vega finally drops the weapon. He's crying. It's emotional. Then this idiot Lerman grabs the gun. Like, what are you doing? And then the cops just kill him so fast. So he's boom, 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 dead. And then Cragen takes Vega to go see his daughter. And that is Dick Wolf, baby. I love that. Do you think Boom 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 Dead is merch or what? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see if it resonates. Let us know in the comments. Okay. <laughs> um, enjoy our commercials and we'll be back. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Okay, welcome back. So this is going to be a non-traditional true crime portion <laughs> of our podcast. We really wanted to do this episode and the crimes that the wiki gives that sometimes we use as a reference is fucking wrong and I'm pissed. No, I'm not. We'll learn some fun, interesting things, but I went on some tangents and we're, we're just going to go with the flow. First of all, the wiki suggested Frank Abagnale, who is what is Catch Me If You Can is based on. What does that have to do with this episode? What? No one is pretending to be a pilot. No one's running around with Tom Hanks. Like, nothing makes sense. There's no financial crimes. There's no forgery. There's, like, I'm pissed. So I I did no research. Go watch Catch Me If You Can if you want to know about this guy. So the next case that the wiki suggests is Kevin Tunnell. And this is interesting because I think it's just like under the influence murder, can you change what happens, what what punishment's fair? And yeah, yeah. So this happened, the Kevin Tunnel case started in uh, the last day of 1981. It was New Year's Eve. And Kevin is underage and he got, he was 17. And so he took his older brother's ID and he was just planning to drive to the market near his house in Fairfax, Virginia and score a couple of bottles of champagne. Okay. For New Year's. Doesn't seem too crazy. Um, and then he went out partying for the night and decided to drive home. The Washington Post reported that he had four or five glasses of champagne, which is actually not that much. Or is it? Is that a bottle? It depends on how big the glasses are. I don't know. 
Yeah, that's almost a bottle of champagne. But you don't with champagne, you don't really drink as much as a wine glass. But then when you're young, you drink crazy. So who knows? Like, is that four or five solo cups of champagne? Like, you know, it's it really could be, but it's probably not a great number. Four or five of any drink is probably not a great number to drive on, but yeah. You're right. You're right. I don't know why. (laughs) I'm like, it's fine. But also small town drunk driving is like scary because I think it's just kind of expected. Yeah, yeah. Commonplace. Um, Yeah. Um, So his friends did try to stop him, but like anyone that's drunk, he insisted like, oh, nothing ever bad happens to me. Um, And that's quoted in the LA Times. Famous last words, Jesus. Yeah, something did happen. Um, He had a giant like gray Dodge and it rounded a blind curve and it swerved across the double yellow lines and into a compact Volkswagen car, which was being driven by Susan Marie Herzog. Now, she died instantly. Um, which is wow. good because the impact fractured her skull, broke her neck, both of her arms, both of her legs. Like, she was fully oh kind of broken. God. So, in, like, a sad way, it's good that she died instantly because right. it seemed like the injuries were a lot. And Tunnel, he walked away with just a bump on his head and a few cuts. So, um, he pled guilty in a Virginia juvenile court to DWI manslaughter and had to publicly confess his crimes. And he cried and was very emotional on the stand. Um, he was not Wait, how old for- was he? 17. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which in some places, I think you'd be charged as an adult. I mean, we know yeah. cases where you're 13 and charged yes. as an adult. So like, yeah. I guess we never really know. He was not charged for murder, but that's obviously how people look at him. Like, you can't really get away from that. Now, this is kind of crazy. So the parents of Susan, they wanted Kevin to pay them every Friday for 18 years since she was 18 years old and it happened on a Friday. It's And the court approved this punishment. So basically, he agreed that he would write a $1 check in Susan's name and send it to her family every Friday of every week of every month until the year 2000. Wow. It's kind of like a sitcom. It's like the Seinfeld sitcom where it's like, oh, you can't pay your fines. So then you get a butler. Like, it is like such a weird punishment. I'm trying to think. weird I've that the court... I've seen this in it. something else. I've seen it in something else. It was like People in another magazine covered. There was yeah, this was Yeah, like just but just this idea of doing something every week that people are like, you don't need the money and it's like I want him to think about my daughter every week when he writes that check. I've seen that play out like on a TV show somewhere or something. Probably I'm based not. on this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um so after 6 years of writing the checks, he said that it hurt too much to continue. And so then he decided to send them 12 years of checks at once. And they go, nah, bitch, that's not the point. Not the point. You will never forget you killed our daughter. And it only adds up to $936 um, total, but that wasn't the point of this. He multiple times did stop or like didn't have time or was just too upset. And the parents took him to court multiple times on principle. Um, so, and when he was 26, he was found in contempt of court and their persistence cost them a lot of money. Like they spent thousands in legal fees to force tunnels to send the checks weekly. So it was not about the money at all. You know, we've put that together. Yeah. The Herzog said they were not at all touched by Tunnel's tears on the stand or whatever pain writing the checks has caused him. People judge them and are like, he was 17, but they don't care. And it's about vengeance and they don't care. Wow. Um, he then, part of his, um, punishment, 
spent a year speaking to groups about the evils of drunk driving. And then he continued to speak to groups for the next six years. And then he became like the most famous adolescent drunk driver in the land. I don't know if that's what you really want to be known for, but he did become a very famous drunk driver. Um, And... Well, and then there's like a little twist in the writing of the article and they're like, actually the most famous repentant drunk driver. So yeah, he traveled to auditoriums, talked to high school students, adult audiences, and just like talked about the worst night of his life and how, you know, how to prevent being in his shoes because no one would want to live as him. Um, He talks about how his friends really disappeared and no one wanted to know him anymore. He doesn't dwell on it, um, but he does not make any plans on New Year's and he uses that day to like reflect and chill. Um, He lives in Arizona as of 1995. I haven't found any current current stuff, stuff, but he works in PR. The parents said they have no intention of forgiving him. The Herzog's second daughter was also hit by a drunk driver in 1987. Um, it was a crash in Florida that crushed her legs and left her with a permanent limp. So they have no sympathy for drunk drivers. Oh my gosh. At all. Yeah. They don't give a fuck. Um, Patricia Herzog became the chairman, uh, chairwoman of MADS, uh, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving's Virginia chapter. And then the dad um, is an administrator of the National Organization's Eastern Region. Wow. So, for some reason, that's what the fan wiki thinks this episode is based on. (laughs) Which is, I mean, a stretch. I'm glad you told us about it. Like, I never heard the story, but like, yeah, it's kind of a stretch. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Today is just more storytelling. So then I was thinking kind of for the Christmas Catholic abuse episode, like maybe I can compile some things or find things that didn't inspire the episode, but are connected. So I was looking for like former professors, crime stories, like rehabilitation, whatever. I found one juicy, juicy story and we're going to go through it. But I also just found some professors I can highlight. Um, And there's a few out there. But Jason Soul, he was once a felon and now a Minnesota criminal justice professor at Hamlin University in St. Paul. He believes that policing in and of itself is bad for our health and the main fucked up problem of the world. He grew up in Chicago. He was young during the war on drugs. He got involved in gangs. He got shot. He got arrested, got sent to jail, got out and got a PhD. Um, His focus is to have students imagine what it feels like to like... So his story is basically he got a gun pulled on him and uh, then he got a gun to protect himself and then he got caught with that gun. And at 19 years of age, he got sent away and now is a felon forever. And your whole world shrinks when you're a felon. And now he's 43, he's a college professor, but he still lives in the shadow of a criminal record that's almost two decades long. And even though his troubles with the law are long past in Minnesota, they don't really make it easy to move past your offenses. Soul um, has three nonviolent felonies on his record, two for drug possession and one for the handgun when he was 19. And he wants his record clear. So he's begging for a pardon. He's applied to the Minnesota Board of Pardons that requires, this is interesting, the governor, the attorney general, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court all have to agree on the pardon. And then you're pardoned. And this happens one third of the time. Wow. Um, But then I read a bunch of comments and some people don't love him being a professor. (laughs) I was, the comments were that he's too indoctrinating and it's his stuff and he doesn't really teach and he just wants a story, but it could also be people that, I don't know. Yeah. Controversial. Jose Bao is another man who went from sitting in a prison cell to standing in front of a classroom. 
Jose uh, served 12 years in Massachusetts for drug trafficking. And while serving his time, he got an English degree from Boston University. Ooh. Uh, yeah, they have a th- uh, thing. And we're I learned something here that will be interesting, I think, to our listeners. But after his release in 2011, he got a master's degree in criminal justice from BU. Now he's in his 40s. Um, he was an instructor at Holyoke Community College for a long time. And now he works at Holyoke Public Schools. Um, and I didn't know this at all, but Bill Clinton signed a crime bill. I didn't know about that. So Bill Clinton signed a crime bill that we all know about, but I didn't know this part, that it made people in prison ineligible for Pell Grants. And so by cutting funding, the law squashed a ton of existing college prison programs. Oh, Yeah. So fucked up. I've heard about this crime bill. People really hate him for it. Um, yeah. And I know he took away a lot of like free lunch programs and a lot of stuff. But this sucks. Yeah. Um, that really I- fucking sucks. And Jose's like, I wasn't a bad kid. I just wanted to smoke weed with my friends. I didn't go to school. So then I dropped out in 10th grade. And then, you know, shoplifting turned into drug trafficking. And then he was uh, spent 12 years in federal lockup. Wow. And he remembers thinking, you're not going to do this to me. I'm not going to let you turn me into an animal. I'm going to be normal when I get out. Um, and that path became possible for him when he was transferred to a medium security prison in eastern Massachusetts, which had this college program through Boston University. That's amazing. Uh, it is That's amazing. Great. And so I found a couple other stories. Um, someone in New York who's a professor. Um, and there, yeah, there are people that are able to do it. It just sucks that our system makes it super hard. But when you have people that are stabler, like that don't believe that you can change, it's fucked. But so many of these people, it's like um, they're products of their upbringing yeah. and their like yeah. environment. And it does seem fucked to be 17 and put away for like, you know, 12 years. But yeah. Also, in the episode, Vega did kill someone. So, okay, now we're going to do a cry- another crime that has nothing to do with anything. Ready, guys? Okay. This is super interesting, and it's current. It's between 2019 and 20. 20- like, this guy is still in jail awaiting trial. Like, this is an ongoing case. So, I you know, this is going to be interesting. So, this guy's name is Gary Maynard. Um, he is a criminology professor who specializes in deviancy. And he taught in a lot of different places. He was like an adjunct professor. And we'll learn more about it as I go on. But you, <laughs> being an adjunct, I guess, sucks. Yeah, I don't think you get like any benefits. Like my mom is an adjunct professor at Columbia. She doesn't do anything at Columbia. She just like, they have her on their list. Like they could bring her in if they wanted to. My brother-in-law is, he likes it, but it's not his full-time gig. Like, he just enjoys teaching and the class he does at DePaul. Um, Yeah. Shout out. But, um, so anyway, so he taught at Santa Clara, Chapman, and Sonoma State University. We know a bunch of people who went to Chapman. Do we really? Yeah. Who? Emily Teller's husband and uh, Hannah Einbinder went there. And I feel like someone else, but yeah. Oh, yeah, because they're both California kids. Yeah. Cali kids. So he drove out of the Lumberjacks restaurant parking lot on Tuesday in August of 2021. And he drove past the town and then left the small city of Susanville in the northeastern corner of California, according to the New York Times. And then he headed up a steep highway into the Sierra Nevada, where he set the forest ablaze. Going back. So they say that he was super obsessed with, like, He was super obsessed with Jonestown, the 1978 massacre. And he wrote tons of articles about Jim Jones. And he was just very into like narcissists, cults, deviant, like control. And he just got very into uh, Jonestown. Former students describe him as anxious, troubled, and inappropriate. Okay, so not good. 
Um, one student said he appeared vaguely psychotic in her evaluation at the end of class and that he mostly ranted about celebrities and tech company founders. Uh-oh. He's a classic case. He just straight up lost it during the pandemic. I think he suffered through mental illness and like some fucked up shit. And then the pandemic truly broke him. Yeah. Um, he would teach on Zoom in a dark bedroom and revealed he had a sick father. He had a lawsuit against him from a former landlord. He was struggling with his mental health. He was very open with that. He ended up living in his car. And according to a former roommate turned lover, Kate, who did not want to use her last name at all, said that he would beat the shit out of his room with a hammer and there were dimples in the floor and gashes in the walls. And he was just like kind of violent and unhinged. But she loved him. Now, I don't know if it was love, but they were fucking. I think they were both lonely and fucking during the pandemic, but they yeah. were roommates. And she owned this house and she was doing well. And I, it started as a friendship and then, I don't know. Shit happens. So she couldn't understand how he had a PhD and three master's degrees, but then would be in and out of homelessness and sleep in offices and shower at the university gym locker room. So it didn't really make sense to her. Um, so then during the pandemic, he started sending unhinged rantings and YouTube video links to his students who then notified the school that he seemed not well. And then his contract was not renewed. Um, it wasn't just the pandemic that caused his life to become hard. He had a hard upbringing in Ohio where um, he said to New York Magazine that he grew up in the midst of a rampant, soulless abuse and was molested by two different people. Um, and learning in school acted as a reprieve from the empty, loveless environment of abuse that he faced. Ugh. He does seem smart when you read this quote. Like, those are big words. I don't know. I'm sure like, he's smart. He just like yeah. was not getting the help he needed. Correct, yeah. Um, but he also committed... It, this is, like, twisted. So, basically, um, his car was found near another fire. There was, like, the Dixie Blaze. Do you remember this? Yeah, It was, like, the biggest fire. Huge. So, that kind of... Like, the, he was starting fires around this Dixie Blaze. Um, so, the Dixie Blaze was, like, super... And that's why that, and because he's a criminology professor, like, that's why this became such a big news story, like, the interest behind it all. But this Dixie Fire... Why did it call it Dixie? Didn't we decide that's not a word to use? Even the chicks I, changed their I thought name. the chicks had to drop it. I don't know why they called it that. Yes. And it was, like, in California. There's not anything really Dixie-ish about California, but I don't know. No, so the Dixie Blaze was, like, in, it's the second biggest fire in California's history, and it burnt over a million acres, and it cost um, over $540 million in government, like, oof, costs to put down. Like, so yeah. it was a big fire. So his car was found near this fire. Um, and then later they found the same car, tra car tracks near this other fire. So they assumed it was this guy. Um, so Verizon, which isn't this illegal, but sent coordinates for their that phone's location every 15 minutes to the agents so they could track his movements. Um, the investigators tracked Maynard's movements using um, other stuff too, like his food stamp transactions, phone records, and they um, put a device, they attached a device to his car in the Lumberjacks parking lot. And oh I just gosh. like want to eat at Lumberjacks. Like I want a fucking mountain diner pancake meal right now. Um, no, and that there was, like, a full, like, TV moment of, like, someone walking out, like, looking both ways and then sticking a little tracker underneath his car. Interesting. It is very interesting. So local police um, worked with them. So the local police pulled him over for a traffic violation, and then a Forest Service agent sneaked up and stuck an electronic beacon under his car. 
Oh, okay. So very TV, like you said. So they followed him into the Lassen National Forest where he set three additional fires off and then he was arrested. Um, during the time he was driving into this giant Dixie fire and was starting fires and like breathe, like he loved trees and he was texting Kate a bunch and he wrote to her, I am with the trees as they go. I will go. It is wrong and existentially wrong that they burn and die because of people. So he did love trees. He had like a love affair of trees, but then did burn that. I think he truly needed help. Yeah. Because, like, you're saying it's, like, wrong that they're being burned because of people and then you're burning them. It's... Yeah. Not yeah. making then a ton it, of sense. Yeah. 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 So when he was arrested um, and brought in on August 7th, prosecutors alleged that he was super violent, kicking his cell door, shouting at a sheriff deputy, I'm going to kill you, you fucking pig. And then... Uh, I just wanted to say that. But Maynard said, I never said kill. I just said I would sue them. So that's what okay. he's saying. <laughs> he's just, but not denying that he called them pigs, which is fun. Whatever you say, so, Gary. Whatever you say. He says that he is not dumb or a criminal and definitely not dumb enough to start a fire where his car was stuck. Because when his car was first found at this Dixie fire, it was like wedged. And so he was just like, why would I start fires where my car was wedged? And it's like, I don't know. You also are in love with the trees. Now, what's interesting, so this giant Dixie fire was accidentally started by PG&E, which is the company from Aaron Brockovich with all the water poisoning. Yeah. Why is PG&E still in business? I think that's like water California's biggest fucking, I think that's California's like, that's like Con Ed, man. That's like a big ass company that like controls our power grid. They started the biggest fire ever. It it was, it's like, what the fuck is this company up to? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I said, so the, like, because the fire was so big and his, like, job as a criminology professor, the New York Times um, put it on the front page. And the headline was, expert on criminal minds is accused of wildlife arson spree. So, fun. Um, he rejects any psychological interpretation of his interest in social deviance. He also self-diagnosed himself with Asperger's, but says that non-Asperger people live in a world dumbed down with dumbed-down delusions and lies covered in formal conventions where they don't speak their mind. And he said that to New York Magazine. Unhinged, wow. but that was a good... Yeah. That's kind of a smart point. We are all lying to each other and ourselves, <laughs> constantly fully delusional, and people with Asperger's are just like, I don't like you. I don't know. <laughs> Anywho, um, but most, like most criminals, he had a past of crimes against women. He was let go from a university in Tennessee after allegations from a student and later was accused of strangling that student in the streets of Ohio in the middle of the day. Um, and May 7th, 2015, he was arrested after five witnesses reported the choking and he pled down to a misdemeanor and was given a sentence of 60 days in jail. But these things were not checked um, by all his places of employment because he was mostly hired as an adjunct to teach one class a semester for like five grand. So his past fell through the cracks. So no one um, really checked on his crimes, but... Um, and then contingent faculty members are known as, quotes, freeway flyers because they move around and often work at several schools at once to make ends meet, even though Maynard said he was poor, but he was happy, he was free, and he believes he is innocent of any crime. 
he stands by that he loves trees and is one with the trees and would never hurt the trees. Um, as of an article from July 2022, very right, very current, yeah. um, he has been sitting in jail as he awaits trial and he has pleaded not guilty and that he has been miscast. Each charge of arson to federal property carries a potential sentence of five to 20 years. And he said to a reporter in New York Magazine that incarceration, if I wasn't in the middle of it, would be very fascinating uh, because, you know, of his sociology. Um, he does like that he sees trees out the window of his Nevada cell. Um, he's in a cell in Nevada City and he's sociology for life. So his prison sociology, <laughs> he's focusing on gangs, ethnic cliques and its hierarchies and its petty injustices and methods of control. And he also talks about the spirits that are in the prison with him and one of which is River Phoenix. Huh. And he believes he will be exonerated. Um, exoneration is going to be tough, though, because the FBI were able to crack into his locked iPhone and there's a lot of video evidence. And um, just some overall facts. Um, I guess 10% of wildfires every year are set on purpose, according to the California Cal Fire, which is the state's um, largest fire agency. And when arson is for insurance, money, or revenge, we can recognize a criminal impulse. But when a fire is set just like to nature, just to watch the world burn, that's in quotes, a stranger kind of animal. More confusing to study, I guess. A classic arsonist uh, general profile is in, uh, a lone white male, 18 to 34, poorly educated, angry, disenfranchised, fascinated with police and military, sexually dysfunctional, heavy drinker, and... LOL, Ed Nordskog, former L.A. Sheriff um, Department detective and arson investigator, said to New York Magazine that it also describes everyone he's ever worked with in law enforcement. <laughs> and he's from the inside, okay? Yeah. Um, and then, but nine out of ten fires are straight-up accidents, but from human activity— and then... Yeah, like cigarettes and like campfires and... Yeah. yeah. So, and then 10% are like true arson arson. And Maynard's final quote in New York Magazine profile is, I wish the trees were on the jury because they would acquit me. Now, did they find... I wonder, did they find any like accelerant or like anything? Did he just like go and drop a match? I mean, did they find anything that he used to like set the fires? Because like... So fun. I'm sure they did. I didn't yeah. catch it, but I'm sure they No, did. no, no. I'm not trying to say like you didn't find something. I'm just kind of like, you know, I guess he can argue in court wrong place, wrong time a bunch of times or not really. Because like they had to have found what he'd used. I feel bad. This man needs to go. He needs to plead not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. So yeah, the the fires he's been charged with is the Cascade Fire, which just reminds me of every time we okay, um, we can't sing, but do you know that song, right? Yeah, but I think that that singer's name is Cascada. <sighs> Shut up. <laughs> and then um, so that was July twentieth. July twenty first was the Everett Fire, and then August seventh was this Ranch Fire, and then. The Conrad fire was August 7th. Let's see how he did it. My confusion is, I wonder why none of the resources I found said how he started the fire. Do you think it's to not give people ideas or something? Maybe. Yeah, because it's like, he, st he set like successful fires, right? There must have been some kind of like accelerant or maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, but there is one super, super famous um, forensic files where like after this guy was arrested... Fires went down from like hundreds to three a year. 
Yeah. Like, he was legit setting hundreds of fires a year, and he was, like, part of the fire department. But arsonists, like, they don't they don't get caught so easy. Like, it seems like for every three someone gets caught with, they've set, like, dozens of fires. Yeah. Like, arsonists just, like, love, love it. And, yeah, and besides weird men, I think the next uh, big cause of big level fires are gender reveal parties. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ew. But those Man. people are facing jail charges. I yeah. Mean, charge, yeah, and I hope they fucking rot in jail for a little bit. Yeah. So weird. That's another thing. That's like what I was talking about earlier in the episode where it's like people cling to these things that are not even traditions. Like, why is everyone doing gender reveals? Where did that come from? And why are people so glued to it? It's not real. It's not tradition. It's definitely tied to social media. I mean, it's like another party people want to have around having a kid. Like, it's social media. It's showing off, like, different creative ways you can do something. It's TikTok, you know? Like, that's it. That's. I I mean, this didn't exist, like, five years, like... 10 years ago, there were like not gender reveal parties. I know it's just weird that we just accept it. I always think, I think about bachelorette parties too, where it's like, it used to be like, oh, one fun night out. And now it's like, we're going to Brazil. Get a matching hat. (laughs) Okay. Listen, we're going to our interview. We could talk forever. Thank you for all that information, Lisa. I'm glad you got to interview. I mean, I appreciate you researching like five cases. So thank you. Well, I had to mishmash something. It would be weird if I just talked about one teen drunk driver. Like, I just, I don't understand how that even got into the wiki, but I'm glad I learned about Gary Maynard because this is also a case that we could all follow together since the trial has not even happened and we'll see what happens to him. But, But he has a public defender. He's poor. Yeah. So I don't know if he's gonna even be able to like have a great defense of like this if man. If they let just- him get on the stand and he goes, I love the trees, the trees are with me. I mean, how are we not doing mental disease or defect? Like, you know what I mean? He belongs in an institute, not in a prison. Yeah. Like, yeah. and and God forbid, starting fires is bad. And obviously he has done violence before in the past, but no one physically was harmed. Yeah. And so I don't feel that bad saying that he deserves some sort of support. Right. But the New York Magazine profile was very, very good if you want like an in-depth thing. And there's more information from Kate and about all of his weird um, behaviors. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Stay tuned, everyone. We'll be back with a great interview. This week's guest is a comedian, an actor, a writer who many of you have seen in a slew of fantastic Disney live-action movies in the 90s. Uh, Operation Dumbo Drop, That Darn Cat. Maybe you've heard of a little movie called Cool Runnings, and you may also recognize him as the voice of Bernie in Shark Tale. But today, you know him as Rudy Lemke. Guys, check out our really amazing talk with Dougie Doug. We're so excited. I'm actually at a festival in Montreal right now. And at breakfast, I told everyone we were interviewing you and they got jealous and excited. The Canadians, come on. <laughs> they were pumped. That's great. Are you in New York right now? I am, yes. And you've lived there your whole life? My whole life. Well, you know, I've lived other places, but I was born and raised in New York, yes. So was SVU a big deal since you are a New York guy to get into the Dick Wolf universe? Oh, my God, yes. Um, Because, you know, as a New York actor, um, the whole idea is to get into Dick Wolf universe. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully you can stay in the Dick Wolf universe for as long as you can. So 
Uh, and so that was during a period where I was just kind of like, you know, had a lot of downtime. And I was like, man, I'd like to lo- work locally because, you know, I had small children and so forth. So it was perfect to, and that began obviously a, a lot of different Dick Wolf stuff. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, he's got a lot of things going on. So yeah. it's like, <laughs> you're not... <laughs> But so you got, you, we saw like doing some research on you that you got started like doing stand up. Yes. At 17. Yes. That's exciting. We're both stand ups. Oh, cool. Yeah. And how was being at the Apollo as a teen? Uh, treacherous. Iconic. <laughs> treacherous, you said? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, there's certain, you know, like every room has its tricks, as you, as I'm sure you all know. It's do's and don'ts, you know, and uh, so there's a particular, you know, ethic associated with the Apollo that has to do with hit them hard, hit them fast, <laughs> or you will uh, go down the dark path of humiliation. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, as, as a New York person, you know, usually everyone, the, it's always the negatives of like, well, this has changed and that's changed and it used to be like this and I liked it better there. What are things that you that have changed that you're like, I like this. This is nice. Well, you know, neighborhoods that used to be uh, completely filled with uh, destruction and criminality only have less of it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so New York is scrubbed up. Well, let's just face it, compared to the 80s. yeah. So I, I'm, I welcome even, you know, some of the things that uh, that people complain about that has come as a result of cleaning it up. I'm like, just clean it up, please. And so I'm happy about that. And was it cool to shoot in New York, like on the streets and stuff? They arrested. Yeah. Was that fun? Yeah. They, they, I think they arrested me in a homeless shelter. <laughs> yeah, in this episode, but oh then in God, your the other, soup. in your other episode where you're driving Richard Kind around. Oh yeah, and yes, you got yes. you're you're on the streets in that one. That's true. Yeah, and we and that <laughs> we shot at, at the airport. I had to pick him up from the airport as the right. taxi. That was cool. I, I didn't even know people were allowed to do that in New York. I like, didn't either. Yeah, we, we, it's like, well, that's the Dick Wolf power, I guess. He's like, <laughs> open up the airports. <laughs> so, so I was like, wow, this is cool. And uh, so, yeah, it's always great shooting on the streets of New York, you know, because people are nonplussed or, or they, or, you know, or they're really like, you know, uh, uh, in your face, either or. Like, it's like, it's like, and how was that interrogation scene intense? Um, the thing, the scene I liked the most about the, inter- the interrogation scene was cool because <laughs> because uh, Ice T was in the scene and Ice T was just kind of like in between takes. He was just like talking about crime in jail and <laughs> like <laughs> you know, see the in jail culture. He's like a, I guess he's like a a guru of the underground or some kind. So he was telling us about the nuances of jail culture and the do's and don'ts. And I, I, I said, wow. And then they were like, okay, action. And they started, and they started grilling me. <laughs> so, so it was really fascinating, you know, uh, being in, in a scene with him. You know? Yeah, Ice-T had an amazing podcast for a while. And he was very into... He is a pursuer of knowledge. Like, he really does, like want to know about new... And like he... I remember he had an author on who had written all these best-selling books from prison. And like, so I think he he definitely tries to like know about that culture and like, you know, amplify those voices and stuff. But he's definitely, he's definitely a smart dude. He is. Brilliant guy. Yeah. One day we'll meet him. <laughs> um, how did you get into character? I mean, it's like kind of a tough role. 
to play someone kind of shaken about and being bullied? Um, no, I'm, I'm accustomed to that. My whole childhood, I had information that I could draw from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, speaking of growing up in New York and being bullied, yes, that, that was like, <laughs> like totally, uh, I, I guess that, just my, that was my entire adolescence, shaken up. Yes, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like the way you played this character, though, because you could tell the guy's like down on his luck. He's struggling with addiction, but you're not playing it like crazy. Like you're not yeah. you're not overwrought. You're not like scratching and going nuts, you know, like you're just exactly. kind of like, you know, you were like, I remember when I was watching it, I was like, wait, did this guy have anything to do with it? But the, I feel bad for him. Like, you know, you're really kind of. Yeah, I was trying to ma mask uh, symptoms, which is I think is what people really do as opposed to expose it. Um, right. It's kind of like acting from the inside out. You know, when people are gesticulating, they are acting from the outside in. So it's more about what's going on inside than what what your behavior suggests. So, yeah, I, I, I hate to be, you know, I don't want to be too intellectual about it, but you know what I mean, or too process. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And what I love about SVU is like, it is copaganda at a certain degree, but then they do show that cops do bad things. And I feel like that scene was very much like, yeah, this shit happens and it's messed up that they are putting, like trying to pin you on a crime that you didn't do. And they didn't care that if you did or didn't do it. They, you know? Yeah. It, like I, said a lot, small scene, but said so much. Yeah. I think all the episodes that I've done in this particular universe, I, I feel grateful to have been a part of because they did, they were nuanced uh, portrayals and new and nuanced stories. They weren't just sort of like, you know, that shitty blue bloods. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh, shade yeah. alert. Where it's like, I didn't do it, I swear. You know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh, my my people, we need so much help. Help us. <laughs> do you remember anything like about working with like Mariska Hargitay or Christopher oh, Loney? Are you kidding? <laughs> Mariska Hardate is unforgettable. Uh, <laughs> she is probably one of the most uh, spiritually attractive women that I've ever met in my life, outside of my wife, of course. <laughs> wow. What's but spiritually attractive? Spiritually attractive. I love like that a definition. Phrase. It's not somebody who just has a vibe where it's just like, damn, she's, she made me want to walk a lady across the street or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be decent. Ah, she has a profound, <laughs> a profound decency. Uh, that that woman, and uh, actually, yeah. actually, in that in the scene where we were, uh, <laughs> where where I get which, where I get assaulted or whatever, or or caught by the police, she's the one who wrestles me to the ground, and that was very hard for me to like play like I was disturbed by this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we're going to have to do another take because I don't think that was authentic enough. Please, don't, <laughs> don't leave Mariska. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed working with her, to say the least. Um, but uh, yeah, Chris was good too. He was good too. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually how most of these go. People are like, of Mariska, light of my life, the most gorgeous <laughs> in and out. Funny, the set is hers. Like, yeah, he was stretching in the corner. I don't know. <laughs> that's exactly. Professional, that's exactly. great actor doing deep squats. Like, that's all we hear. <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. What and about, it does um, move fast. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, but like it moved fast. Like how many takes did you do of the like, yeah. the stunt? Might have been two. And they were like, good enough. Let's go. Wow. But uh, that makes sense. You know, an hour procedural drama, you know, it's, it, they got to move. You know, yeah, we hear it's fast. Yeah. So it's not, you know, there's a lot of frustration if you're, if you, if you, if you're not, you missed your line. There's a lot of like, you feel like your life is going to be threatened. <laughs> like, like, it's like, no, no, I, I, I'm sorry. Can we do it again, you know? But yeah. uh, they don't have the luxury, which I understand. Not like sitcoms or something where, you know, ah, we have another take, you know, it's a live audience or whatever. Right, right. So you guys are really into this show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's why I, I was like, oh, you were outside. Like, we're probably watching like five, six episodes at a time. We're, uh, <laughs> we're doing full analysis, researching the crimes, prep. Yeah, a lot of a lot of crimes. Full confession. My daughter, who was a child at the time, I mean, maybe when she was about nine or ten, she she found this show. And ended up been watching this show. I thought that we needed therapy, seriously. <laughs> and come to find out, she was really interested in the rights of people who needed to be defended, who were voiceless. And she ended up being a very, uh, very uh, compassionate person and a crusader for rights. And she really, really wanted to meet Mariska. She was, she's like, that's her favorite actress, by the way. So. Maybe one day I'll, I could arrange it, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, you got to get back on SVU. If you came back, who would you play? I, I don't know. I'd play anything on that show. <laughs> definitely. But, but I would I would definitely do it simply to to make Mariska say hello to my daughter. Motivation. She would. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. We hear that a lot. People are like, this show made me become a forensic scientist. This yeah. show got me into the law. Like, you know... Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, she felt that way because the show a lot of times makes defense attorneys look really bad it's and makes true. like the prosecutors look like the, the heroes. That's and, true. Um, but it's like people- She's not me, basic. Yeah. She saw past it. She saw past that. Yes. And also, and also I think that Mariska's passion to defend vulnerable yes. girls and so forth is very resonant among young women. You know, they're yeah. really like some because somebody needs to get, get in the middle of this crap. Like, you know, so, so she'll do it. Like, you know, she's yeah, and always, know. always believing victims and stuff. Oh, yeah, she's true. definitely, yeah. Are your kids interested in like acting in artistic pursuits or not at all? Oh, God, no. Um, well, my daughter isn't, my son is definitely. So that's we're gonna, we're, we're gonna work that out of him uh, shortly. <laughs> <laughs> now, I do have to ask. How yes. often are people coming up to you yelling cool runnings? <laughs> um, every day of my life. <laughs> yes. That's what I thought. Yes. That and an assortment of other film-related quotes in that movie. You know, you're dead. And, you know, all sorts of different things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. More, And then is that more than cause? Like, so cool runnings, number one. That's like what people uh, approach you for. Yes, number one, it me for a lot of different things, but mostly cool runnings. Yes, definitely. That is that's obviously enduring, you know, for generations. We watched it in school. Yes, that was the first time I saw it. Was like in school. A lot of people tell me that that and wow, that. like it's educational viewing. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, 
Um, I've heard it shown in a lot of places. Like it was a, fan, a big favorite in jail, apparently. It was one of the things they could agree on um, to watch because, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of people fighting over one television. So I've heard that a lot. You know. <laughs> no, it's did true. you? How did you make your jump from like stand up as a teen into acting? Were you always gonna? Did you always know you wanted to do that, or were you like did stand up lead to that, or what? Yeah, were what? you a theater kid? Yeah. No, I was not. A, well, I, I did perform in theater, but I wouldn't call myself a theater kid. I would uh, in high school uh, productions and stuff. I got kicked out of the drama club for foolishness. A so, bad boy. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, um, but I, but I, but the uh, principal of my school recognized that I had a penchant for, for uh, being comically disruptive, and he said, "Okay, well, he he set aside assemblies for me to just have minutes, basically minutes, you know, and that I started developing an act by by going getting on stage during assemblies and entertaining my. Uh, so he was a genius uh, guy, Father James Bonilla. You know, God rest his soul. Um, that is cool. But, so that's where I got my taste for the stage. But um, I ended up uh, uh, being seen at the Apollo. At, at, for, uh, I did this, uh, they had a television show, Showtime at the Apollo at that time. I was on it quite a bit. And so I got saw by a lot of, seen by a lot of people there. I did that. Spike saw me at the Apollo and put me in a couple movies. And Russell Simmons at the time was doing a show that was produced after the, the Apollo show. And uh, it was called New Music Report that I wrote and hosted and so forth. So, and, um, and so most of my work got uh, came from there initially, my acting work. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool that you had a principal that didn't just say like, shut up, stop being a clown and like actually like fostered your talents and your strengths, you know? Yes, yes. He, he, and, and I actually had a conversation with some of the other uh, Christian brothers years later and they're like, he always had a, had, a, had, a, had an understanding of kids, you know, <laughs> like that. <laughs> Literally, you know. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's the point. When you're around kids, you should be trying to understand them. So, yeah. He was, gifted, he was gifted like that. Can you tell us about In the Weeds? Writing, yeah, directing, yeah. producing, being in it. Tell us about it. Oh, I, I'm so excited about this movie. Um, myself and a good friend of mine, Clayton Alice, we, uh, you know, we, how did the pandemic happen? We were sitting around, the industry was shut down. And we said, okay, you know, okay, Mickey, AK, Judy, let's do a movie. <laughs> so we got all of our various friends together, DPs, lighting people, actors, actresses, so forth and so on. And we decided to just kind of like begin just shooting. You didn't have a completed script. We had just an outline and different uh, ideas that we wanted to work out that were resonant in, in terms of that, what we were seeing in terms of people's anguish and pain and, 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 and separation from loved ones, et cetera. And we decided, okay, let's just start doing something. So we, we, we improvised first a couple of scenes and then we went and scripted. So we ended up with something that's spectacular. It's called In the Weeds. Uh, and as we all, you know, we're all in the weeds and after all this crap. And uh, hopefully we're we're moving moving into it and coming out on the other side healed and enlightened and so forth. And so that's really what the movie is about: playing a a father who's really estranged from his daughter. He's an adult daughter, which I am dealing with now. And it's I don't want to I want to hear what's going on, but I don't. You know, <laughs> um, you know, guys, this and that. And of course, I was I was a guy once, so I'm like, <laughs> this is a horror story. <laughs> um, so it's really about him not 
being in touch with her and a stranger and trying to find her and you know, being on the outs with her. But then the sub story, subplot is really about her and this romance, this young English, uh, Indian English transplant from uh, London and their love affair and, you know, all that, all that stuff that, that is upsetting to fathers. <laughs> 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 but eventually it, it all resolves itself somehow and we figure out, you know, we learn something about something. So it's very, it's very mysterious. It deals with, with healing and the fact that this, the things that heal us are right in front of us. You know, the, we, we're fascinated with like, you know, stuff that grows out of the streets and herbs and stuff like that. And, you know, so it's really about trying to heal ourselves. That's, that's what it is. That's awesome. And where can people watch it? Well, right now we're, we're placing the film in under festival consideration. So we should hear about where it will be oh. the, by the, in fall, in fall. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. And what about, um, we're also curious to know about your writing career, books. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The fall of 1987, the year I was born, no big deal. Oh my God, that's scary. That <laughs> <laughs> I am an AARP member. So. <laughs> my parents get AARP and I read it and I like it. It's a pretty good magazine. Fantastic. <laughs> The magazine. They always um, have it waiting for me when I go visit, and I I like it. Liam Neeson was on the cover. They have great people, great great old people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, tell us about your book. How is it different than writing and like doing movies and TV? It seems kind of like a nightmare writing a book. <laughs> seems hard. It's actually it's actually really my chosen profession. You know, I started wow. obviously stand up your writing, but then uh, you know I segued into. A writer, you know, being a head writer of a of a sketch show called New Musical Report, like I said, that was uh, produced by Russell Simmons. So I, I've, I've always been writing, and but then I, my goal is to is to continue to write books, which I love the most because it's isolated activity, and I'm hard to get along with, I guess. And uh, <laughs> so, and also, I'm, I'm like I said, when you get older, you get tired of being uh, engaged all the time. You know, this is something I could do, and then I could walk in the park, and I could do this. And I don't have to be like, you know, collaborating all the time. So, and it's a nice meditative thing. It's kind of, it's either write books or go to the laundromat, you know, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I love it. I, the book is great. The book is uh, really a, 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 a sort of an analysis of the, the period of the late 80s in, in, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, where I grew up. And, you know, where all of the greatest people on earth are from, Jackie Gleason. Uh, <laughs> Jay-Z, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so it's really just about that that, that uh, late 80s period with sort of the, civil, uh, the uh, post-civil rights, uh, so-called hip-hop uh, generation era and uh, the birth of hip-hop and so forth and all that. And, uh, and uh, it deals with a lot of the issues that uh, came up and, uh, during that time and, and uh, mostly about the the so-called crack epidemic and, and, and its impact on on people's lives and uh, and in some cases made made people extremely resilient and 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 very very successful as a result of having gone through the nightmare of such a thing. So it's a great book, I, I, if I say so myself. <laughs> yeah, and then you're currently you're currently working on another one. Yes, this one is more. I guess you could say a more commercial book, so to speak. It's, this one is a 
is a, is the behind the scenes of the greatest bobsled movie of all time. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, so I'm having a lot of fun writing this one because it's a lot of memories about what happened uh, on that set and John Candy, of course. Uh, oh, legend. Great. And, uh, you know, so it's a great, uh, it's, it's nice to go down memory lane. I think people are really, really going to enjoy this, this book. It's, 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 this one is a lot of fun. While filming that movie, did you guys feel it was going to be a hit? Um, um, I didn't know uh, or feel that, but, you know, John was telling us, oh, you, you these, these guys don't understand. I'm from Canada. This is big. <laughs> <laughs> I was there when this happened. And we were, I, I actually was like, you know, is, is he psychic or something? Like, what, what, why is he so passionate about this? I, I, was, I, had, I had a television show at the time that was on air. It was, it was a mid-season replacement on ABC. It was called Where I Live. So I had all my money Wait. on that, thinking, yeah, when this when my television show comes out, it's going to be, I'm going to be the best, biggest of the book. So I was like, okay, and I'll also do the bobsled movie too. <laughs> oh, I did. I was like, oh man, like Bob is the thing, I guess. So no, I did not. No. That's so funny. And then yeah, cut to the rest of your life, bobsled references every day. <laughs> I can't wait for this book, all the secrets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them. I'm, I'm even a little nervous about some of the stories. Uh, I actually <laughs> actually um uh, nervous about how I described the other guys who played in the bobsled because I have a, it's really just a joke. But I, but my wife was like, oh, I don't know about this. Because <laughs> let me let me let me let me try to test it out on you. I say the guys in the bobsled movie are like prototypical men, but different slices of manhood. Like you know, I said that uh, Roll Lewis, who played Junior, is like one of the nicest men you'd ever meet. He's so nice that he could actually have a relationship with a woman based solely on friendship. You know, this is just that. <laughs> Me, on the other hand, I'm very nice, but not that nice. Like, I could go out on a date with a woman and have a very wonderful, polite conversation, but at the end, I would say, is that it? You know, that's me. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, Malik Yoba is a fantastic guy, a lot of fun. He's the kind of guy that would go out with a woman have sexual intercourse and yell out her name. <laughs> Leon, on the other hand, also fun with women, but he'd have sexual intercourse with a woman and yell out his own name. <laughs> Ooh, <yes. laughs> so, this is the, so that's a little slice of, you know. Just a little I think it's appropriate. <laughs> I don't think it's that. I don't think okay. it's a crossing the line. Okay, okay, there we yeah, go. Yeah, it's funny. It's really just, these are like my brothers. So we, it's, it's joshing. But Are you still friends? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I've, I've wow. saw all of them. We were all together about a month ago. Yeah, so it's always great when we get together. It's always oh, weird. Because, yeah, it's always weird because people are like, there's the bobsled people. <laughs> 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 Do you um, think, I know they like train, they probably like gave you some like basic training. Do you think you could bobsled? I did it once. Yes, I did it once. Oh. And um, it, it was really like, I, it's hard to describe, but it's like, from what I understand, it's like jumping out of a plane, which I've never done, but the, the G-forces are so like, there's so much, so, it's not like a roller coaster. It's like jumping yeah. out. Of a plane. 
so intense. And uh, yeah, I did it once and I probably won't do it again, but I, yeah. I, I had to do it once. Wow. See, yeah, that's it sounds scary. It's like so fast. This was amazing. Yeah, this was an amazing chat. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Appreciate it. Thank you. A legend, an icon, a star. He would show he up in a heads up game. He is the moment. <laughs> I love when you Google Dougie Doug, though, that it goes, Dougie Doug is not a retired rapper. He's never been a rapper. Like, it's just like a full, you're thinking of someone else. Dougie Doug is an actor. Um, I just love, yeah, that he was like, I like people that in the pandemic too were like, I'm going to like make something or, you know, use my resources that I can. And uh, I think that in the Weeds movie that he talked about seems... We'll post a link to the trailer. He sent it That's to us. That's a great idea. Yeah, fucking fun, cool. I love him starting as, you know, as a stand-up is thrilling, of course. Oh, yeah. Writing like books, the multifaceted. Oh we keep yeah. talking to multifaceted people and that's really yes. cool. Yes. <sighs> um, yeah, this- I love telling people about our guests. It, it's like, yeah, Lou Diamond Phillips. Like, who are you? I don't know. It seems <laughs> wild. The people that we get on this pod is wild. Um, uh, but I love this episode. Like, I really thought it had like a lot of very interesting themes about like, can you be rehabilitated? You know, what what makes one person's mistakes of the past more easy to look over than someone else's, you know, like. Yeah, like when when he called out Cragen and was like, well, you were a fucking alcoholic and you changed. Like, why am I not getting the grace? Um, yeah. You? But, you know, there's murder. I get it. Um, but, and if it wasn't, SV, it just sucks. Like, I always hate when the detectives are so dead set on something, you know, but he was being set up. So, it, it it was a thriller. This was like um, the movie The Fugitive, you know, yes. edge of your seat thrilling it was episode. it was exactly that. I'm realizing now it's one of like some of the episodes of the show and some of my favorite ones are set up like movies. And this one felt like a movie to me, like just a full frame job in the end. Like and and like the whole time I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah, I was like, this is going to be one where he did do it. And he's just denying it. And then I was like, oh, no, wait, the daughter does it because she doesn't like that he's in love with this younger girl. I was like, it's Zoe Saldana. And then I was like, I'm completely on the wrong track. And I've seen this episode at least three times in my life. So I liked that it kept me guessing even on a rewatch because I, you know, my mind is flooded with SVU. No, I knew Um, it was that fucking dork. I knew his ass. No, even when they were but interviewing the Lexus, him. That was wild. The Lexus yeah. uh, detail was but uh, very good. Truly, you're so right. Like the fugitive. I didn't kill my wife. Like it's the fugitive. Um, the fugitive was big in the Traeger households. Big. I think I saw it with my family in the theater. It's an important, it's one of the top 90s thrillers. Um, absolutely. Also for me, Celia Ward is, has always been one of the most beautiful actresses who played his wife. And it was in the show Sisters that I talk about all the time because I love. And I remember just that whole movie. I was like, what is going to happen? And I remember, I couldn't believe they turned the river green in Chicago for St. Patrick's Day. That's like where I learned about that was The Fugitive. Oh my God, I forgot where, who I was talking to, but someone was like Savannah or Charleston, some dumb city. I don't even remember, but they were like, (laughs) that has the best St. Patrick's Day in the country. And I was like, excuse me? Like, what are you talking about? Like, is there even a giant Irish population? Uh, And they said that's irrelevant. And I go, no, it's not. Like, you cannot say that Charleston or whatever city this person said has a better St. Patty's than like a Chicago, Boston vibe. Like, yeah, you just can't. 
Sorry. No. I, I do <laughs> have, like Charleston. Have ever, have your parades ever been shut down because the city can't behave and the whole city <laughs> needs to be punished? And so the parade gets taken away? Like, no. So shut your mouth. Like, I've never been to pissed. Chicago for St. Patrick's Day, but I have been to Boston and South Boston, which is like the Irish area. And it was one of the craziest things I've ever witnessed. <laughs> like... I on just, a regular day once, I was waiting in line in Boston to get into a bar and someone grabbed me by the shoulders and moved me physically over. <laughs> Twice. Like, it, it, and I stepped on a dying rat that day. It was like truly um, like a wild Boston night, I guess. Or, or a regular Boston night. Yeah. Boston is, yeah, they are there at a party for fucking St. Patrick's Day, for sure. But I didn't realize they would move your body. Um, But... Wow, <laughs> what a day. Um, and you know about Dave Matthews' band in the Chicago River, of I'm course, sure. I'm of sure. course. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God, do you watch um, the show I Love That For You? No, but I should because Matt Rogers. Uh, it's funny and it's quick. It's like seven episodes and they're 30 minutes. You got to watch it. It's fun. I liked it. So there's a scene where the comedian Panam Patel, um, I believe she's a comedian. She's also an actor, but um, she plays this character and she goes, I was actually the manager of Dave Matthews Band um, when they dumped all that shit into the Chicago River and that was actually my call. Like, and it was just like a, such a funny aside for all of us that remember that happening. Can you imagine being on a beautiful architectural boat tour of sh- downtown <laughs> Chicago, enjoying your family vacation? Maybe you just got engaged, you're on a nice boat ride and then shit flowing down on you. The shit of the Dave Matthews band, though. Famous shit. <laughs> so Can gross. you imagine? I can't. I can't. Um, uh, I do okay. like that in the movie The Breakup, Vince Vaughn's job is like tour guide Chicago because that was a lot of um, day jobs for comedians. They did tour guide stuff. Oh, right, right, Yeah, right. I just wouldn't be able to wake up and go go get a trolley, start driving a trolley around town. I don't think so. Wait, I didn't realize that was his job. How do they have such a nice apartment? Is it her? She does better than him? Well, he, it's a fam- he's not just the tour guide. He, it's a family business and that's the thing. His brother, Vincent D'Onofrio, is pissed at him. Got it, it. Right, because he's not working hard enough and he has to do all the books and then Vince Vaughn has to mature and then he does the books. <sighs> Casey, I know we you promised you. <laughs> I know we promised you we were going to do like like lighter postmortems, <laughs> but we just can't shut the fuck up. Um, anyway, this was a killer episode. I think it's like, the, what I learned was a little bit of like, let's, yeah, let's not pin people's past mistakes on them forever. People can change. Uh, let's get into our What Was Sister Peg Do for this week, which is our weekly segment where we give you an organization, a book, a doc, an article, something to just uh, pump up the info you have on whatever we talked about in this week's episode. And, you know, I was ta- thinking a lot about like recidivism in in prisons. And I think Orange is the New Black is a show that really like brought that to light for me. Like when Tasty gets out and like she cannot function. And I was thinking about how this man, in this episode got out, became a professor, became, you know, a lawyer, all these things. And and that's not everybody's story. So I wanted to highlight the Fortune Society, whose mission is to support successful reentry from incarceration uh, into, you know, regular life, I guess, if you can call it regular, and to promote alternatives to incarceration. They are based in New York City. They offer housing, employment services, health services, substance abuse treatment, and many other Uh, services to recently incarcerated individuals. And they are also an advocacy group that pushes to shape policy that can restructure the criminal justice system, which if you listen to this podcast, it needs a couple tweaks. Um, So for more information, go to fortunesociety.org. 
That is, yeah, fortunesociety.org. Thank you so much, Kara. And next week we'll be doing, I sounded like I was a morning news reporter. And thanks for that thanks report. Thanks for that, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> um, next week we'll be doing Granting Immunity, moving on up to season 16, episode 19, all divisible. Oh, I was about to say divisibles by three, but that's not true at all. <laughs> um, I'm out of here. Um, watch the episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedupppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedupppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.